Introduction to The Man in the Iron Mask This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas The Elder, or Père Introduction In the months of March through July in 1844, in the magazine Le Siècle, the first portion of a story appeared, penned by the celebrated playwright Alexandre Dumas. It was based, he claimed, on some manuscripts he had found a year earlier in the Bibliothèque Nationale, while researching a history he planned to write on Louis Fourteenth, They chronicled the adventures of a young man named D'Artagnan, who, upon entering Paris, became almost immediately embroiled in court intrigues, international politics, and ill-fated affairs between royal lovers. Over the next six years, readers would enjoy the adventures of this youth and his three famous friends, Porthos, Athos, and Aramis, as their exploits unraveled behind the scenes of some of the most momentous events in French and even English history. Eventually these serialized adventures were published in novel form, and became the three D'Artagnan romances known today. Here is a brief summary of the first two novels. The Three Musketeers, serialized March through July, 1844. The year is 1625. The young D'Artagnan arrives in Paris at the tender age of eighteen, and almost immediately offends three musketeers, Porthos, Aramis, and Athos. Instead of dueling, the four are attacked by five of the cardinal's guards, and the courage of the youth is made apparent during the battle. The four become fast friends, and, when asked by D'Artagnan's landlord to find his missing wife, embark upon an adventure that takes them across both France and England in order to thwart the plans of the Cardinal Richelieu. Along the way they encounter a beautiful young spy, named simply Milady, who will stop at nothing to disgrace Queen Anne of Austria before her husband, Louis the Thirteenth and take her revenge upon the four friends. Twenty years after, serialized January through August, 1845. The year is now 1648, twenty years since the close of the last story. Louis XIII has died, as has Cardinal Richelieu, and while the crown of France may sit upon the head of Anne of Austria as regent for the young Louis Fourteenth, the real power resides with the Cardinal Mazarin, her secret husband. D'Artagnan is now a lieutenant of musketeers, and his three friends have retired to private life. Athos turned out to be a nobleman, the Comte de la Fere, and has retired to his home with his son, Raoul de Bragelonne. Aramis, whose real name is D'Herblay, has followed his intention of shedding the musketeer's cassock for the priest's robes, and Porthos has married a wealthy woman who left him her fortune upon her death. But trouble is stirring in both France and England. Cromwell menaces the institution of royalty itself while marching against Charles I, and at home the Fronde is threatening to tear France apart. D'Artagnan brings his friends out of retirement to save the threatened English monarch, but Mordaunt, the son of Milady, who seeks to avenge his mother's death at the musketeer's hands, thwarts their valiant efforts. Undaunted, 
our heroes returned to France just in time to help save the young Louis the Fourteenth, quiet the Fronde, and tweak the nose of Cardinal Mazarin. The third novel, The Vicomte de Bragelonne, serialized October 1847 through January 1850, has enjoyed a strange history in its English translation. It has been split into three, four, or five volumes at various points in its history. The five-volume edition generally does not give titles to the smaller portions, but the others do. In the three-volume edition, the novels are entitled The Vicomte de Bragelonne, Louise de la Valliere, and The Man in the Iron Mask. For the purposes of this e-text, I have chosen to split the novel as the four-volume edition does, with these titles. The Vicomte de Bragelonne, Ten Years After, Louise de la Valliere, and The Man in the Iron Mask. In the first two e-texts, the Vicomte de Bragelonne, e-text 2609. It is the year 1660, and D'Artagnan, after thirty-five years of loyal service, has become disgusted with serving King Louis the Fourteenth, while the real power resides with the Cardinal Mazarin, and has tendered his resignation. He embarks on his own project, that of restoring Charles the Second to the throne of England, and, with the help of Athos, succeeds earning himself quite a fortune in the process. D'Artagnan returns to Paris to live the life of a rich citizen, and Athos, after negotiating the marriage of Philip, the king's brother, to Princess Henrietta of England, likewise retires to his own estate, La Fere. Meanwhile, Mazarin has finally died, and left Louis to assume the reins of power, with the assistance of Monsieur Colbert, formerly Mazarin's trusted clerk. Colbert has an intense hatred for Monsieur Fouquet, the king's superintendent of finances, and has resolved to use any means necessary to bring about his fall. With the new rank of intendant bestowed on him by Louis, Colbert succeeds in having two of Fouquet's royal friends tried and executed. He then brings to the king's attention that Fouquet is fortifying the island of Belle-Île-en-Mer, and could possibly be planning to use it as a base for some military operation against the king. Louis calls D'Artagnan out of retirement, and sends him to investigate the island, promising him a tremendous salary and his long-promised promotion to captain of the musketeers upon his return. At Belle-Isle, D'Artagnan discovers that the engineer of the fortifications is, in fact, Porthos, now the Baron du Vallon, and that's not all. The blueprints for the island, although in Porthos's handwriting, show evidence of another script that has been erased, that of Aramis. D'Artagnan later discovers that Aramis has become the Bishop of Vannes, which is, coincidentally, a parish belonging to Monsieur Fouquet. Suspecting that D'Artagnan has arrived on the king's behalf to investigate, Aramis tricks D'Artagnan into wandering around Vannes, in search of Porthos, and sends Porthos on an heroic ride back to Paris to warn Fouquet of the danger. Fouquet rushes to the king and gives him Belle-Isle as a present, thus allaying any suspicion, and at the same time humiliating Colbert, just minutes before the usher announces someone else seeking an audience with the king. Ten years later, e-text 2681. As 1661 approaches, Princess Henrietta of England arrives for her marriage, 
and throws the court of France into complete disorder. The jealousy of the Duke of Buckingham, who is in love with her, nearly occasions a war on the streets of Le Havre, thankfully prevented by Raoul's timely and tactful intervention. After the marriage, though, Monsieur Philip becomes horribly jealous of Buckingham, and has him exiled. Before leaving, however, the Duke fights a duel with Monsieur de Ward at Calais. De Ward is a malicious and spiteful man, the sworn enemy of D'Artagnan, and by the same token, that of Athos, Aramis, Porthos, and Raoul as well. Both men are seriously wounded, and the Duke is taken back to England to recover. Raoul's friend, the Comte de Guiche, is the next to succumb to Henrietta's charms, and Monsieur obtains his exile as well, though de Guiche soon effects a reconciliation. But then the king's eye falls on Madame Henrietta during the Comte's absence, and this time Monsieur's jealousy has no recourse. Anne of Austria intervenes, and the king and his sister-in-law decide to pick a young lady with whom the king can pretend to be in love, the better to mask their own affair. They unfortunately select Louise de la Valliere, Raoul's fiancée. While the court is in residence at Fontainebleau, the king unwitting overhears Louise confessing her love for him while chatting with her friends beneath the royal oak, and the king promptly forgets his affection for Madame. That same night, Henrietta overhears, at the same oak, de Guiche confessing his love for her to Raoul. The two embark on their own affair. A few days later, during a rainstorm, Louis and Louise are tramped alone together, and the whole court begins to talk of the scandal while their love affair blossoms. Aware of Louise's attachment, the king arranges for Raoul to be sent to England for an indefinite period. Meanwhile, the struggle for power continues between Fouquet and Colbert. Although the Belle Isle plot backfired, Colbert prompts the king to ask Fouquet for more and more money, and without his two friends to raise it for him, Fouquet is sorely pressed. The situation gets so bad that his new mistress, Madame de Belliere, must resort to selling all her jewels and her gold and silver plate. Aramis, while this is going on, has grown friendly with the governor of the Bastille, Monsieur de Baisemeaux, a fact that Baisemeaux unwittingly reveals to D'Artagnan while inquiring of him as to Aramis's whereabouts. This further arouses the suspicions of the musketeer, who was made to look ridiculous by Aramis. He had ridden overnight at an insane pace, but arrived a few minutes after Fouquet had already presented Belle-Isle to the king. Aramis learns from the governor the location of the mysterious prisoner, who bears a remarkable resemblance to Louis the Fourteenth. In fact, the two are identical. He uses the existence of this secret to persuade a dying Franciscan monk, the general of the Society of the Jesuits, to name him Aramis, the new general of the order. On Aramis's advice, hoping to use Louise's influence with the king to counteract Colbert's influence, Fouquet also writes a love letter to La Valliere, unfortunately undated. It never reaches its destination, however as the servant ordered to deliver it turns out to be an agent of Colbert's. Louise de la Ferrière, e-text 2710 Believing D'Artagnan occupied at Fontainebleau, and Porthos safely tucked away at Paris, 
Aramis holds a funeral for the dead Franciscan. But in fact, Aramis is wrong in both suppositions. D'Artagnan has left Fontainebleau. Bored to tears by the fetes, retrieved Porthos, and is visiting the country house of Planchet, his old lackey. This house happens to be right next door to the graveyard, and upon observing Aramis at this funeral, and his subsequent meeting with the mysterious hooded lady, D'Artagnan, suspicions aroused, resolves to make a little trouble for the bishop. He presents Porthos to the king at the same time as Fouquet presents Aramis, thereby surprising the wily prelate. Aramis's professions of affection and innocence do only a little to allay D'Artagnan's concerns, and he continues to regard Aramis's actions with a curious and wary eye. Meanwhile, much to his delight, Porthos is invited to dine with the king as a result of his presentation, and with D'Artagnan's guidance, manages to behave in such a manner as to procure the king's marked favour. The mysterious woman turns out to be the Duchesse de Chevreuse, a notorious schemer and former friend of Anne of Austria. She comes bearing more bad news for Fouquet, who is already in trouble. As the king has invited himself to a fete at Vaux, Fouquet's magnificent mansion, that will surely bankrupt the poor superintendent. The Duchesse has letters from Mazarin that prove that Fouquet has received thirteen million francs from the royal coffers, and she wishes to sell these letters to Aramis. Aramis refuses, and the letters are instead sold to Colbert. Fouquet, meanwhile, discovers that the receipt that proves his innocence in the affair has been stolen from him. Even worse, Fouquet, desperate for money, is forced to sell the parliamentary position that renders him untouchable by any court proceedings. As part of her deal with Colbert, though, Chevreuse also obtains a secret audience with the Queen Mother, where the two discuss a shocking secret. Louis the Fourteenth has a twin brother, long believed, however, to be dead. Meanwhile, in other quarters, de Wardes, Raoul's inveterate enemy, has returned from Calais, barely recovered from his wounds, and no sooner does he return than he begins again to insult people, particularly La Valliere, and this time the Comte de Guiche is the one to challenge him. The duel leaves de Guiche horribly wounded, but enables Madame to use her influence to destroy de Wardes' standing at court. The fetes, however, come to an end, and the court returns to Paris. The king had been more than obvious about his affections for Louise, and Madame, the Queen Mother, and the Queen join forces to destroy her. She is dishonorably discharged from court, and in despair she flees to the convent at Chaillot. Along the way, though, she runs into D'Artagnan, who manages to get word back to the king of what has taken place. By literally begging Madame in tears, Louis manages to secure Louise's return to court, but Madame still places every obstacle possible before the lovers. They have to resort to building a secret staircase and meeting in the apartments of Monsieur de Saint-Aignan, where Louis has a painter create a portrait of Louise. But Madame recalls Raoul from London and shows him these proofs of Louise's infidelity. Raoul crushed challenges Saint-Aignan to a duel, which the king prevents, and Athos, furious, breaks his sword before the king. The king has D'Artagnan arrest Athos, and at the Bastille they encounter Aramis, who is paying Baisemeaux another visit. 
Raoul learns of Athos's arrest, and with Porthos in tow, they effect a daring rescue, surprising the carriage containing D'Artagnan and Athos as they leave the Bastille. Although quite impressive, the intrepid raid is in vain, as D'Artagnan has already secured Athos's pardon from the king. Instead, everybody switches modes of transport. D'Artagnan and Porthos take the horses back to Paris, and Athos and Raoul take the carriage back to La Fere, where they intend to reside permanently, as the king is now their sworn enemy. Raoul cannot bear to see Louise, and they have no more dealings in Paris. Aramis, left alone with Baisemeaux, inquires the governor of the prison about his loyalties, in particular to the Jesuits. The bishop reveals that he is a confessor of the society, and invokes their regulations in order to obtain access to this mysterious prisoner who bears such a striking resemblance to Louis the Fourteenth. And so Baisemeaux is conducting Aramis to the prisoner, as the final section of the Vicomte de Bragelonne, and this final story of the D'Artagnan romances opens. I have written a cast of historical characters, e-text 2760, that will enable curious readers to compare personages in the novel with their historical counterparts. Also of interest may be an essay Dumas wrote on the possible identity of the real Man in the Iron Mask, which is e-text 2751. Enjoy. Signed, John Bercy. Just a note from me. The e-texts which have been named in this introduction are all from Project Gutenberg, and they may be found there. End of introduction. Chapter 1, Part 1 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas, the Elder. Chapter 1, The Prisoner since Aramis's singular transformation into a confessor of the order, Baisemeaux was no longer the same man. Up to that period, the place which Aramis had held in the worthy governor's estimation was that of a prelate whom he respected, and a friend to whom he owed a debt of gratitude. But now he felt himself an inferior, and that Aramis was his master. He himself lighted a lantern, summoned a turnkey, and said, returning to Aramis, I am at your orders, Monseigneur. Aramis merely nodded his head, as much as to say, Very good, and signed to him with his hand to lead the way. Baisemeaux advanced, and Aramis followed him. It was a calm and lovely starlit night. The steps of three men resounded on the flags of the terraces, and the clinking of the keys hanging from the jailer's girdle made itself heard up to the stories of the towers, as if to remind the prisoners that the liberty of earth was a luxury beyond their reach. It might have been said that the alteration effected in Baisemeaux extended even to the prisoners. The turnkey, the same who, on Aramis's first arrival, had shown himself so inquisitive and curious, was now not only silent, but impassable. He held his head down, and seemed afraid to keep his ears open. In this wise they reached the basement of the Bataudière, the two first stories of which were mounted silently and somewhat slowly, for Baisemeaux, though far from disobeying, was far from exhibiting any eagerness to obey. 
On arriving at the door, Baisemeaux showed a disposition to enter the prisoner's chamber, but Aramis, stopping him on the threshold, said, "'The rules do not allow the governor to hear the prisoner's confession.' Baisemeaux bowed and made way for Aramis, who took the lantern and entered, and then signed to them to close the door behind him. For an instant he remained standing, listening whether Baisemeaux and the turnkey had retired, but as soon as he was assured by the sound of their descending footsteps that they had left the tower, he put the lantern on the table and gazed around. On a bed of green serge, similar in all respects to the other beds in the Bastille, save that it was newer, and under curtains half-drawn, reposed a young man, to whom we have already once before introduced Aramis. According to custom, the prisoner was without a light. At the hour of curfew he was bound to extinguish his lamp, and we perceive how much he was favoured in being allowed to keep it burning even till then. Near the bed, a large leathern armchair, with twisted legs, sustained his clothes. A little table, without pens, books, paper, or ink, stood neglected in sadness near the window, while several plates, still unemptied, showed that the prisoner had scarcely touched his evening meal. Aramis saw that the young man was stretched upon his bed, his face half concealed by his arms. The arrival of a visitor did not cause any change of position. Either he was waiting in expectation, or was asleep. Aramis lighted the candle from the lantern, pushed back the armchair, and approached the bed with an evident mixture of interest and respect. The young man raised his head. "'What is it?' said he. "'You desired a confessor,' replied Aramis. "'Yes.' "'Because you were ill?' "'Yes.' "'Very ill?' The young man gave Aramis a piercing glance, and answered, "'I thank you.' After a moment's silence, "'I have seen you before,' he continued. Aramis bowed. Doubtless the scrutiny the prisoner had just made of the cold, crafty, and imperious character stamped upon the features of the Bishop of Vannes was little reassuring to one in his situation, for he added, "'I am better.' "'And so,' said Aramis, "'why, then, being better, I have no longer the same need of a confessor, I think.' not even of the hair-cloth which the note you found in your bread informed you of the young man started but before he had either assented or denied aramis continued not even of the ecclesiastic from whom you were to hear an important revelation if it be so said the young man sinking again on his pillow it is different i am listening Aramis then looked at him more closely, and was struck with the easy majesty of his mien, one which can never be acquired unless heaven has implanted it in the blood or heart. "'Sit down, monsieur,' said the prisoner. Aramis bowed and obeyed. "'How does the Bastille agree with you?' asked the bishop. "'Very well. You do not suffer?' "'No.' you have nothing to regret nothing not even your liberty what do you call liberty monsieur 
asked the prisoner with the tone of a man who is preparing for a struggle. I call liberty the flowers, the air, light, the stars, the happiness of going whithersoever the sinewy limbs of one in twenty chance to wish to carry you. The young man smiled, whether in resignation or contempt it was difficult to tell. Look, said he, I have in that Japanese vase two roses gathered yesterday evening in the bud from the governor's garden. This morning they have blown and spread their vermilion chalice beneath my gaze. With every opening petal they unfold the treasures of their perfumes, filling my chamber with a fragrance that embalms it. Look now on these two roses. Even among roses these are beautiful, and the rose is the most beautiful of flowers. Why then do you bid me desire other flowers, when I possess the loveliest of all? Aramis gazed at the young man in surprise. "'If flowers constitute liberty,' sadly resumed the captive, "'I am free, for I possess them.' "'But the air,' cried Aramis, "'air is so necessary to life.' "'Well, monsieur,' returned the prisoner, "'draw near to the window. It is open. Between high heaven and earth the wind whirls on its waftages of hail and lightning, exhales its torrid mist, or breathes in gentle breezes. It caresses my face. When mounted on the back of this armchair, with my arm around the bars of the window to sustain myself, I fancy I am swimming the wide expanse before me. The countenance of Aramis darkened as the young man continued. Light I have. What is better than light? I have the sun, a friend who comes to visit me every day, without the permission of the governor or the jailer's company. He comes in at the window, and traces in my room a square the shape of the window, which lights up the hangings of my bed and floods the very floor. This luminous square increases from ten o'clock till midday, and decreases from one till three slowly, as if, having hastened to my presence, it sorrowed at bidding me farewell. When its last ray disappears, I have enjoyed its presence for five hours. Is not that sufficient? I have been told that there are unhappy beings who dig in quarries, and laborers who toil in mines who never behold it at all. Aramis wiped the drops from his brow. "'As to the stars which are so delightful to view,' continued the young man, "'they all resemble each other save in size and brilliancy. "'I am a favoured mortal, for if you had not lighted that candle "'you would have been able to see the beautiful stars "'which I was gazing at from my couch before your arrival, "'whose silvery rays were stealing through my brain.' Aramis lowered his head. He felt himself overwhelmed with the bitter flow of that sinister philosophy which is the religion of the captive. So much, then, for the flowers, the air, the daylight, and the stars, tranquilly continued the young man. There remains but exercise. Do I not walk all day in the governor's garden, if it is fine, here if it rains, in the fresh air if it is warm, in perfect warmth, thanks to my winter stove, if it be cold. Ah, monsieur, do you fancy, 
continued the prisoner, not without bitterness, that men have not done everything for me that a man can hope for or desire? Men, said Aramis, be it so, but it seems to me you are forgetting heaven. Indeed, I have forgotten heaven, murmured the prisoner with emotion. But why do you mention it? Of what use is it to talk to a prisoner of heaven? Aramis looked steadily at this singular youth, who possessed the resignation of a martyr with the smile of an atheist. "'Is not heaven in everything?' he murmured in a reproachful tone. "'Say rather, at the end of everything,' answered the prisoner firmly. "'Be it so,' said Aramis. "'But let us return to our starting-point.' "'I ask nothing better.' returned the young man. "'I am your confessor.' "'Yes.' "'Well, then, you ought as a penitent to tell me the truth.' "'My whole desire is to tell it to you.' "'Every prisoner has committed some crime for which he has been imprisoned. What crime, then, have you committed?' "'You asked me the same question the first time you saw me,' returned the prisoner." And then, as now, you evaded giving me an answer. And what reason have you for thinking that I shall now reply to you? Because this time I am your confessor. Then, if you wish me to tell what crime I have committed, explain to me in what a crime consists. For as my conscience does not accuse me, I aver that I am not a criminal. We are often criminals in the sight of the great of the earth, not alone for having ourselves committed crimes, but because we know that crimes have been committed. The prisoner manifested the deepest attention. Yes, I understand you, he said after a pause. Yes, you are right, monsieur. It is very possible that, in such a light, I am a criminal in the eyes of the great of the earth. Ah, then you know something, said Aramis, who thought he had pierced not merely through a defect in the harness, but through the joints of it. No, I am not aware of anything, replied the young man. But sometimes I think, and I say to myself, What do you say to yourself? that if I were to think but a little more deeply, I should either go mad, or I should divine a great deal. And then, and then, said Aramis impatiently, then I leave off. You leave off? Yes, my head becomes confused, and my ideas melancholy. I feel ennui overtaking me. I wish... What? I don't know, but I do not like to give myself up to longing for things which I do not possess, when I am so happy with what I have. "'You are afraid of death?' said Aramis, with a slight uneasiness. "'Yes,' said the young man, smiling. Aramis felt the chill of that smile, and shuddered. "'Oh, as you fear death!' You know more about matters than you say, he cried. 
"'And you,' returned the prisoner, "'who bade me to ask to see you, "'you who, when I did ask to see you, "'came here promising a world of confidence. "'How is it that, nevertheless, "'it is you who are silent, "'leaving it for me to speak? "'Since, then, we both wear masks, "'either let us both retain them "'or put them aside together.' "'Aramis felt the force and justice of the remark, "'saying to himself, "'This is no ordinary man. "'I must be cautious.' "'Are you ambitious?' said he, suddenly, to the prisoner, aloud, without preparing him for the alteration. "'What do you mean by ambitious?' replied the youth. "'Ambition,' replied Aramis, "'is the feeling which prompts a man to desire more, much more, than he possesses.' "'I said that I was contented, monsieur, but perhaps I deceived myself.' I am ignorant of the nature of ambition, but it is not impossible I may have some. Tell me your mind, that is all I ask. An ambitious man, said Aramis, is one who covets that which is beyond his station. I covet nothing beyond my station, said the young man, with an assurance of manner which for the second time made the Bishop of Vannes tremble. He was silent. But to look at the kindling eye, the knitted brow, and the reflective attitude of the captive, it was evident that he expected something more than silence, a silence which Aramis now broke. "'You lied the first time I saw you,' said he. "'Lied!' cried the young man, starting up on his couch, with such a tone in his voice, and such a lightning in his eyes, that Aramis recoiled in spite of himself. "'I should say,' returned Aramis, bowing, "'you concealed from me what you knew of your infancy.' "'A man's secrets are his own, monsieur,' retorted the prisoner, "'and not at the mercy of the first chance-comer.' "'True,' said Aramis, bowing still lower than before. "'Tis true, pardon me, but to-day do I still occupy the place of a chance-comer?' I beseech you to reply, Monseigneur. This title slightly disturbed the prisoner, but nevertheless he did not appear astonished that it was given him. I do not know you, monsieur, said he. Oh, but if I dared, I would take your hand and kiss it. The young man seemed as if he were going to give Aramis his hand, but the light which beamed in his eyes faded away and he coldly and distrustfully withdrew his hand again. "'Kiss the hand of a prisoner,' he said, shaking his head. "'To what purpose?' "'Why did you tell me,' said Aramis, "'that you were happy here? Why, that you aspired to nothing? Why, in a word, by thus speaking, do you prevent me from being frank in my turn?' The same light shone a third time in the young man's eyes, but died ineffectually away as before. "'You distrust me,' said Aramis. "'And why say you so, monsieur?' "'Oh, for a very simple reason. If you know what you ought to know, you ought to mistrust everybody.' "'Then do not be astonished that I am mistrustful, since you suspect me of knowing what I do not know.' 
Aramis was struck with admiration at this energetic resistance. "'Oh, Monseigneur, you drive me to despair,' said he, striking the armchair with his fist. "'And on my part I do not comprehend you, monsieur.' "'Well, then, try to understand me.' The prisoner looked fixedly at Aramis. "'Sometimes it seems to me,' said the latter, "'that I have before me the man whom I seek, and then—' "'And then your man disappears. Is it not so?' said the prisoner, smiling. "'So much the better.' Aramis rose. "'Certainly,' said he, "'I have nothing further to say to a man who mistrusts me as you do.' "'And I, monsieur,' said the prisoner, in the same tone, have nothing to say to a man who will not understand that a prisoner ought to be mistrustful of everybody. Even of his old friends, said Aramis. Oh, Monseigneur, you are too prudent. Of my old friends? You, one of my old friends? You? Do you no longer remember, said Aramis, that you once saw, in the village where your early years were spent. Do you know the name of the village? asked the prisoner. Noisy le sec, monseigneur, answered Aramis firmly. Go on, said the young man with an immovable aspect. Stay, monseigneur, said Aramis. If you are positively resolved to carry on this game, let us break off. I am here to tell you many things, tis true, but you must allow me to see that, on your side, you have a desire to know them. Before revealing the important matters I still withhold, be assured I am in need of some encouragement, if not candor, a little sympathy, if not confidence. But you keep yourself entrenched in a pretension which paralyzes me. Oh, not for the reason you think— for, ignorant as you may be, or indifferent as you feign to be, you are none the less what you are, Monseigneur, and there is nothing, nothing, mark me, which can cause you not to be so. I promise you, replied the prisoner, to hear you without impatience. Only it appears to me that I have a right to repeat the question I have already asked. Who are you? Do you remember, fifteen or eighteen years ago, seeing at Noisy-le-Sec a cavalier, accompanied by a lady in black silk, with flame-coloured ribbons in her hair? Yes, said the young man. I once asked the name of this cavalier, and they told me that he called himself the Abbé d'Herblay. I was astonished that the Abbé had so warlike an air, and they replied that there was nothing singular in that seeing that he was one of Louis the Thirteenth's musketeers. Well, said Aramis, that musketeer and abbey, afterwards Bishop of Vannes, is your confessor now. I know it. I recognized you. Then, Monseigneur, if you know that, I must further add a fact of which you are ignorant, that if the king were to know this evening of the presence of this musketeer, this abbe, this bishop, this confessor, here, he who has risked everything to visit you, 
to-morrow would behold the steely glitter of the executioner's axe in a dungeon more gloomy, more obscure than yours. While listening to these words, delivered with emphasis, the young man had raised himself on his couch, and was now gazing more and more eagerly at Aramis. The result of his scrutiny was that he appeared to derive some confidence from it. "'Yes,' he murmured, "'I remember perfectly.' The woman of whom you speak came once with you, and twice afterwards with another. He hesitated. With another, who came to see you every month. Is it not so, Monseigneur? Yes. Do you know who this lady was? The light seemed ready to flash from the prisoner's eyes. I am aware that she was one of the ladies of the court, he said. You remember that lady well, do you not? Oh, my recollection can hardly be very confused on this head, said the young prisoner. I saw that lady once with a gentleman about forty-five years old. I saw her once with you, and with the lady dressed in black. I have seen her twice since then with the same person. These four people, with my master, and old Perronet, my jailer, and the governor of the prison, are the only persons with whom I have ever spoken, and indeed almost the only persons I have ever seen. Then you were in prison? If I am a prisoner here, then I was comparatively free, though in a very narrow sense. A house I never quitted, a garden surrounded with walls I could not climb, these constituted my residence. But you know it, as you have been there. In a word, being accustomed to live within these bounds, I never cared to leave them. And so you will well understand, monsieur, that having never seen anything of the world, I have nothing left to care for. And therefore, if you relate anything, you will be obliged to explain each item to me as you go along. And I will do so, said Aramis, bowing, for it is my duty, monseigneur. Well, then. Begin by telling me who was my tutor. A worthy, and above all, an honourable gentleman, Monseigneur, fit guide for both body and soul. Had you ever any reason to complain of him? Oh, no, quite the contrary. But this gentleman of yours often used to tell me that my father and mother were dead. Did he deceive me, or did he speak the truth? He was compelled to comply with the orders given him. Then he lied. In one respect, your father is dead. And my mother? She is dead for you. But then she lives for others, does she not? Yes. And I? And I, then? The young man looked sharply at Aramis. Am compelled to live in the obscurity of a prison? Alas, I fear so. And that because my presence in the world would lead to the revelation of a great secret? Certainly, a very great secret. My enemy must indeed be powerful, to be able to shut up in the Bastille a child such as I then was. He is. More powerful than my mother, then? And why do you ask that? Because my mother would have taken my part. Aramis hesitated. 
Yes, Monseigneur, more powerful than your mother. Seeing, then, that my nurse and preceptor were carried off, and that I also were separated from them, either they were, or I am, very dangerous to my enemy? Yes, but you are alluding to a peril from which he freed himself by causing the nurse and preceptor to disappear, answered Aramis quietly. Disappear? cried the prisoner. How did they disappear? In a very sure way, answered Aramis. They are dead. The young man turned pale, and passed his hand tremblingly over his face. Poison? he asked. Poison. The prisoner reflected a moment. My enemy must indeed have been very cruel, or hard beset by necessity, to assassinate those two innocent people, my sole support, for the worthy gentleman and the poor nurse had never harmed a living being. In your family, Monseigneur, necessity is stern, and so it is necessity which compels me, to my great regret, to tell you that this gentleman and the unhappy lady have been assassinated. Oh, you tell me nothing I am not aware of, said the prisoner, knitting his brows. How? I suspected it. Why? I will tell you. At this moment the young man, supporting himself on his two elbows, drew close to Aramis's face, with such an expression of dignity, of self-command, and of defiance, even, that the bishop felt the electricity of enthusiasm strike in devouring flashes from that great heart of his, into his brain of adamant. "'Speak, Monseigneur. I have already told you that by conversing with you I endanger my life.' Little value as it has, I implore you to accept it as the ransom of your own. Well, resumed the young man, this is why I suspected they had killed my nurse and my preceptor. Whom you used to call your father? Yes, whom I called my father, but whose son I well know I was not. Who caused you to suppose so? Just as you, monsieur, are too respectful for a friend, he was also too respectful for a father. I, however, said Aramis, have no intention to disguise myself. The young man nodded assent and continued. Undoubtedly I was not destined to perpetual seclusion, said the prisoner, and that which makes me believe so, above all, now is the care that was taken to render me as accomplished a cavalier as possible. The gentleman attached to my person taught me everything he knew himself, mathematics, a little geometry, astronomy, fencing, and riding. Every morning I went through military exercises and practiced on horseback. Well, one morning during the summer, it being very hot, I went to sleep in the hall, Nothing up to that period, except the respect paid me, had enlightened me, or even roused my suspicions. I lived as children, as birds, as plants, as the air and the sun do. I had just turned my fifteenth year. This, then, is eight years ago? Yes, nearly, but I have ceased to reckon time. Excuse me, 
but what did your tutor tell you to encourage you to work? He used to say that a man was bound to make for himself, in the world, that fortune which heaven had refused him at his birth. He added that, being a poor, obscure orphan, I had no one but myself to look to, and that nobody either did or ever would take any interest in me. I was then, in the hall I have spoken of, asleep from fatigue with long fencing. My preceptor was in his room on the first floor, just over me. Suddenly I heard him exclaim, and then he called, Perronet! Perronet! It was my nurse whom he called. Yes, I know it, said Aramis. Continue, Monseigneur. Very likely she was in the garden, for my preceptor came hastily downstairs. I rose, anxious at seeing him anxious. He opened the garden door, still crying out, Perronet! Perronet! The windows of the hall looked into the court. The shutters were closed, but through a chink in them I saw my tutor draw near a large well, which was almost directly under the windows of his study. He stooped over the brim, looked into the well, and again cried out, and made wild and affrighted gestures. Where I was I could not only see, but hear, and see and hear I did. "'Go on, I pray you,' said Aramis. Dame Perronette came running up, hearing the governor's cries. He went to meet her, took her by the arm, and drew her quickly towards the edge, after which, as they both bent over it together, "'Look, look!' cried he. "'What a misfortune!' "'Calm yourself, calm yourself,' said Perronette. "'What is the matter?' "'The letter!' he exclaimed. "'Do you see that letter?' pointing to the bottom of the well. "'What letter?' she cried. "'The letter you see down there, the last letter from the Queen.' At this word I trembled. My tutor, he who passed for my father, he who was continually recommending me modesty and humility, in correspondence with the Queen— the Queen's last letter, cried Perronette, without showing more astonishment than at seeing this letter at the bottom of the well. But how came it there? A chance, Dame Perronette, a singular chance. I was entering my room, and on opening the door, the window too being open, a puff of air came suddenly and carried off this paper, this letter of Her Majesty's. I darted after it, and gained the window just in time to see it flutter a moment in the breeze, and disappear down the well. "'Well,' said Dame Perronette, "'and if the letter has fallen into the well, tis all the same as if it was burnt, and the Queen burns all her letters every time she comes. "'And so, you see, this lady who came every month was the Queen,' said the prisoner. "'Doubtless, doubtless,' continued the old gentleman, but this letter contained instructions. How can I follow them? Write immediately to her, give her a plain account of the accident, and the Queen will no doubt write you another letter in place of this. Oh, the Queen would never believe the story, said the good gentleman, shaking his head. She will imagine that I want to keep this letter instead of giving it up like the rest, so as to have a hold over her. She is so distrustful, and Monsieur de Mazarin so, yon devil of an Italian, is capable of having us poisoned at the first breath of suspicion. End of Part 1 of Chapter 1
Chapter One, Part Two of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter One, Part Two. Aramis almost imperceptibly smiled. You know, Dame Perronet, they are both so suspicious in all that concerns Philippe. Philippe was the name they gave me, said the prisoner. Well, tis no use hesitating, said Dame Perronet. Somebody must go down the well. Of course, so that the person who goes down may read the paper as he is coming up. But let us choose some villager who cannot read, and then you will be at ease. Granted. But will not any one who descends guess that a paper must be important for which we risk a man's life? However, you have given me an idea, Dame Perronet. Somebody shall go down the well, but that somebody shall be myself. But at this notion Dame Perronet lamented and cried in such a manner, and so implored the old nobleman, with tears in her eyes, that he promised her to obtain a ladder long enough to reach down, while she went in search of some stout-hearted youth whom she was to persuade that a jewel had fallen into the well, and that this jewel was wrapped in a paper. And as paper, remarked my preceptor, naturally unfolds in water, the young man would not be surprised at finding nothing, after all, but the letter wide open. But perhaps the writing will be already effaced by that time, said Dame Perronet. No consequence, provided we secure the letter. On returning it to the Queen, she will see at once that we have not betrayed her, and consequently, as we shall not rouse the distrust of Mazarin, we shall have nothing to fear from him. Having come to this resolution, they parted. I pushed back the shutter, and seeing that my tutor was about to re-enter, I threw myself on my couch, in a confusion of brain caused by all I had just heard. My governor opened the door a few minutes after, and thinking I was asleep, gently closed it again. As soon as ever it was shut, I rose, and listening, heard the sound of retiring footsteps. Then I returned to the shutters, and saw my tutor and Dame Perronet go out together. I was alone in the house. They had hardly closed the gate before I sprang from the window and ran to the well. Then, just as my governor had leaned over, so leaned I. Something white and luminous glistened in the green and quivering silence of the water. The brilliant disk fascinated and allured me. My eyes became fixed, and I could hardly breathe. The well seemed to draw me downwards with its slimy mouth and icy breath, and I thought I read, at the bottom of the water, characters of fire traced upon the letter the Queen had touched. Then, scarcely knowing what I was about, and urged on by one of those instinctive impulses which drive men to destruction, I lowered the cord from the windlass of the well to within three feet of the water, leaving the bucket dangling, at the same time taking infinite pains not to disturb that coveted letter, which was beginning to change its white tint for the hue of chrysoprase, proof enough that it was sinking. And then, with the rope weltering in my hands, slid down into the abyss. When I saw myself hanging over the dark pool, when I saw the sky lessening above my head, a cold shudder came over me, a chill fear got the better of me, 
I was seized with giddiness, and the hair rose on my head, but my strong will still reigned supreme over all the terror and disquietude. I gained the water, and at once plunged into it, holding on by one hand, while I immersed the other and seized the dear letter, which, alas, came in two in my grasp. I concealed the two fragments in my body-coat, and, helping myself with my feet against the sides of the pit, and clinging on with my hands, agile and vigorous as I was, and above all pressed for time, I regained the brink, drenching it as I touched it with the water that streamed off me. I was no sooner out of the well with my prize than I rushed into the sunlight, and took refuge in a kind of shrubbery at the bottom of the garden. As I entered my hiding-place, the bell which resounded when the great gate was opened, rang. It was my preceptor come back again. I had but just time. I calculated that it would take ten minutes before he would gain my place of concealment, even if, guessing where I was, he came straight to it, and twenty if he were obliged to look for me. But this was time enough to allow me to read the cherished letter, whose fragments I hastened to unite again. The writing was already fading, but I managed to decipher it all. "'And will you tell me what you read therein, Monseigneur?' asked Aramis, deeply interested. "'Quite enough, monsieur, to see that my tutor was a man of noble rank, and that Perronette, without being a lady of quality, was far better than a servant, and also to perceive that I must myself be high-born, since the Queen, Anne of Austria, and Mazarin the Prime Minister, commended me so earnestly to their care.' Here the young man paused, quite overcome. "'And what happened?' asked Aramis. "'It happened, monsieur,' answered he, "'that the workmen they had summoned found nothing in the well, after the closest search, that my governor perceived that the brink was all watery, that I was not so dried by the sun as to prevent Dame Perronette spying that my garments were moist, and lastly, that I was seized with a violent fever.' owing to the chill and the excitement of my discovery, an attack of delirium supervening, during which I related the whole adventure, so that, guided by my avowal, my governor found the pieces of the Queen's letter inside the bolster where I had concealed them. "'Ah!' said Aramis. "'Now I understand.' Beyond this, all is conjecture. Doubtless the unfortunate lady and gentleman not daring to keep the occurrence secret, wrote of all this to the Queen and sent back the torn letter. "'After which,' said Aramis, "'you were arrested and removed to the Bastille.' "'As you see.' "'Your two attendants disappeared?' "'Alas!' "'Let us not take up our time with the dead, but see what can be done with the living. You told me you were resigned.' "'I repeat it without any desire for freedom? As I told you. Without ambition, sorrow, or thought? The young man made no answer. Well, asked Aramis, why are you silent? I think I have spoken enough, answered the prisoner, and that now it is your turn. I am weary. Aramis gathered himself up, and a shade of deep solemnity spread itself over his countenance. It was evident that he had reached the crisis in the part he had come to the prison to play. "'One question,' said Aramis. "'What is it? Speak.' 
In the house you inhabited, there was neither looking-glasses nor mirrors. "'What are those two words, and what is their meaning?' asked the young man. "'I have no sort of knowledge of them.' "'They designate two pieces of furniture which reflect objects, so that, for instance, you may see in them your own liniments, as you see mine now, with the naked eye.' "'No.' there was neither a glass nor a mirror in the house answered the young man aramis looked round him nor is there anything of the kind here either he said they have again taken the same precaution to what end you will know directly now you have told me that you were instructed in mathematics astronomy fencing and writing but you have not said a word about history my tutor sometimes related to me the principal deeds of the king st louis king francis i and king henry four is that all very nearly this also was done by design then just as they deprived you of mirrors which reflect the present so they left you in ignorance of history which reflects the past since your imprisonment books have been forbidden you so that you are unacquainted with a number of facts, by means of which you would be able to reconstruct the shattered mansion of your recollections and your hopes. "'It is true,' said the young man. "'Listen, then. I will in a few words tell you what has passed in France during the last twenty-three or twenty-four years, that is, from the probable date of your birth, in a word, from the time that interests you.' "'Say on.' and the young man resumed his serious and attentive attitude. "'Do you know who was the son of Henry the Fourth? "'At least I know who his successor was.' "'How?' "'By means of a coin dated 1610, which bears the effigy of Henry the Fourth, and another of 1612 bearing that of Louis the Thirteenth. "'So I presume that, there being only two years between the two dates,' Louis was Henry's successor. Then, said Aramis, you know that the last reigning monarch was Louis the Thirteenth. I do, answered the youth, slightly reddening. Well, he was a prince full of noble ideas and great projects, always, alas, deferred by the troubles of the times, and the dread struggle that his minister Richelieu had to maintain against the great nobles of France. The king himself was of a feeble character, and died young and unhappy. I know it. He had been long anxious about having an heir, a care which weighs heavily on princes, who desire to leave behind them more than one pledge that their best thoughts and works will be continued. Did the king then die childless? asked the prisoner, smiling. No, but he was long without one and for a long while thought he should be the last of his race. This idea had reduced him to the depths of despair, when suddenly his wife, Anne of Austria, the prisoner trembled. "'Did you know,' said Aramis, "'that Louis the Thirteenth's wife was called Anne of Austria?' "'Continue,' said the young man, without replying to the question. "'When suddenly,' resumed Aramis, the queen announced an interesting event. There was great joy at the intelligence, and all prayed for her happy delivery. On the 5th of September, 1638, she gave birth to a son. 
Here Aramis looked at his companion, and thought he observed him turning pale. "'You are about to hear,' said Aramis, "'an account which few indeed could now avouch, for it refers to a secret which they imagined buried with the dead, entombed in the abyss of the confessional.' "'And you will tell me this secret?' broke in the youth. "'Oh!' said Aramis, with unmistakable emphasis. I do not know that I ought to risk this secret by entrusting it to one who has no desire to quit the Bastille. I hear you, monsieur. The queen, then, gave birth to a son. But while the court was rejoicing over the event, when the king had shown the newborn child to the nobility and people, and was sitting gaily down to table to celebrate the event, the queen, who was alone in her room, was again taken ill, and gave birth to a second son. Oh, said the prisoner, betraying a more bitter acquaintance with affairs than he had owned to, I thought that monsieur was only born in... Aramis raised his finger. Permit me to continue, he said. The prisoner sighed impatiently and paused. Yes, said Aramis, the queen had a second son, whom Dame Perronette, the midwife, received in her arms. Dame Perronette, murmured the young man. They ran at once to the banqueting-room, and whispered to the king what had happened. He rose and quitted the table. But this time it was no longer happiness that his face expressed, but something akin to terror. The birth of twins changed into bitterness the joy to which that of an only son had given rise, seeing that in France, a fact you were assuredly ignorant of, it is the oldest of the king's sons who succeeds his father. I know it. And that the doctors and jurists assert that there is a ground for doubting whether the son that first makes his appearance is the elder by law of heaven and of nature. The prisoner uttered a smothered cry, and became whiter than the coverlet under which he hid himself. Now you understand, pursued Aramis, that the king, who with so much pleasure saw himself repeated in one, was in despair about two, fearing that the second might dispute the first claim to seniority, which had been recognized only two hours before, and so this second son, relying on party interests and caprices, might one day sow discord and engender civil war throughout the kingdom, by these means destroying the very dynasty he should have strengthened. "'Oh, I understand, I understand,' murmured the young man. "'Well,' continued Aramis, "'this is what they relate, what they declare. This is why one of the Queen's two sons, shamefully parted from his brother, shamefully sequestered, is buried in profound obscurity. This is why that second son has disappeared, and so completely that not a soul in France, save his mother,' is aware of his existence. "'Yes, his mother, who has cast him off,' cried the prisoner in a tone of despair. "'Except also,' Aramis went on, "'the lady in the black dress, and finally, excepting—' "'Excepting yourself, is it not? You who come and relate all this, you who rouse in my soul curiosity, hatred, ambition—' and perhaps even the thirst of vengeance, except you, monsieur, who, if you are the man to whom I expect, 
whom the note I have received applies to, whom, in short, heaven ought to send me, must possess about you. What? asked Aramis. A portrait of the king, Louis the Fourteenth, who at this moment reigns upon the throne of France. Here is the portrait, replied the bishop, handing the prisoner a miniature in enamel, on which Louis was depicted lifelike, with a handsome, lofty mien. The prisoner eagerly seized the portrait and gazed at it with devouring eyes. And now, monseigneur, said Aramis, here is a mirror. Aramis left the prisoner time to recover his ideas. So high, so high, murmured the young man, eagerly comparing the likeness of Louis with his own countenance reflected in the glass. What do you think of it? at length said Aramis. I think that I am lost, replied the captive. The king will never set me free. And I, I demand to know, added the bishop, fixing his piercing eyes significantly upon the prisoner, I demand to know which of these two is king, the one this miniature portrays, or whom the glass reflects. The king, monsieur, sadly replied the young man, is he who is on the throne, who is not in prison, and who, on the other hand, can cause others to be entombed there. Royalty means power, and you behold how powerless I am. Monseigneur, answered Aramis, with a respect he had not yet manifested, the king, mark me, will, if you desire it, be the one that, quitting his dungeon, shall maintain himself upon the throne, on which his friends will place him. Tempt me not, monsieur, broke in the prisoner bitterly. Be not weak, monseigneur, persisted Aramis. I have brought you all the proofs of your birth. Consult them. Satisfy yourself that you are a king's son. It is for us to act. No, no, it is impossible. Unless, indeed, resumed the bishop ironically, it be the destiny of your race that the brothers excluded from the throne should be always princes void of courage and honesty, as was your uncle, Monsieur Gaston Tolian, who ten times conspired against his brother, Louis the Thirteenth. What? cried the prince, astonished. My uncle Gaston conspired against his brother? Conspired to dethrone him? Exactly, Monseigneur, for no other reason, I tell you the truth. And he had friends, devoted friends? As much so as I am to you. And, after all, what did he do? Failed. He failed, I admit, but always through his own fault, and for the sake of purchasing, not his life, for the life of the king's brother is sacred and inviolable but his liberty. He sacrificed the lives of all his friends, one after another. And so, at this day, he is a very blot on history, the detestation of a hundred noble families in this kingdom. I understand, monsieur. Either by weakness or treachery, my uncle slew his friends. By weakness, which in princes is always treachery. And cannot a man fail, then, from incapacity and ignorance? 
do you really believe it possible that a poor captive such as i brought up not only at a distance from the court but even from the world do you believe it possible that such a one could assist those of his friends who should attempt to serve him and as aramis was about to reply the young man suddenly cried out with a violence which betrayed the temper of his blood we are speaking of friends but how can i have any friends i whom no one knows and have neither liberty money nor influence to gain any i fancy i had the honour to offer myself to your royal highness <sighs> do not style me so monsieur tis either treachery or cruelty bid me not think of aught beyond these prison walls which so grimly confine me let me again love or at least submit to my slavery and my obscurity monseigneur monseigneur if you again utter these desperate words if after having received proof of your high birth you still remain poor-spirited in body and soul i will comply with your desire i will depart and renounce forever the service of a master to whom so eagerly i came to devote my assistance and my life monsieur cried the prince would it not have been better for you to have reflected before telling me all that you have done that you have broken my heart for ever and so i desire to do monseigneur to talk to me about power grandeur i and to prate of thrones is a prison the fit place you wish to make me believe in splendour and we are lying lost in night you boast of glory and we are smothering our words in the curtains of this miserable bed you give me glimpses of power absolute whilst i hear the footsteps of the ever watchful jailer in the corridor that step which after all makes you tremble more than it does me to render me somewhat less incredulous free me from the bastille let me breathe the fresh air give me my spurs and trusty sword then we shall begin to understand each other it is precisely my intention to give you all this monseigneur and more only do you desire it a word more said the prince i know there are guards in every gallery bolts to every door cannon and soldiery at every barrier how will you overcome the sentries spike the guns how will you break through the bolts and bars monseigneur how did you get the note which announced my arrival to you you can bribe a jailer for such a thing as a note if we can corrupt one turnkey we can corrupt ten well i admit that it may be possible to release a poor captive from the bastille possible so to conceal him that the king's people shall not again ensnare him possible in some unknown retreat to sustain the unhappy wretch in some suitable manner monseigneur said aramis smiling i admit that whoever would do this much for me would seem more than mortal in my eyes but as you tell me i am a prince brother of the king how can you restore me the rank and power which my mother and my brother have deprived me of and as to effect this i must pass a life of war and hatred how can you cause me to prevail in those combats render me invulnerable by my enemies ah monsieur reflect on all this place me to-morrow in some 
dark cavern at a mountain's base, yield me the delight of hearing in freedom sounds of the river, plain, and valley, of beholding in freedom the sun of the blue heavens, or the stormy sky, and it is enough. Promise me no more than this, for, indeed, more you cannot give, and it would be a crime to deceive me, since you call yourself my friend. Aramis waited in silence. Monseigneur, he resumed after a moment's reflection, I admire the firm, sound sense which dictates your words. I am happy to have discovered my monarch's mind. Again, again, oh God, for mercy's sake, cried the prince, pressing his icy hands upon his clammy brow. Do not play with me. I have no need to be a king to be the happiest of men. But I, Monseigneur, wish you to be a king for the good of humanity. Ah! said the prince, with fresh distrust, inspired by the word. Ah! with what, then, has humanity to reproach my brother? I forgot to say, Monseigneur, that if you would allow me to guide you, and if you consent to become the most powerful monarch in Christendom, you will have promoted the interests of all the friends whom I devote to the success of your cause, and these friends are numerous. Numerous? Less numerous than powerful, Monseigneur. Explain yourself. It is impossible. I will explain, I swear before heaven, on that day that I see you sitting on the throne of France. But my brother... You shall decree his fate. Do you pity him? Him? Who leaves me to perish in a dungeon? No, no, for him I have no pity. So much the better. He might have himself come to this prison, have taken me by the hand, and have said, My brother, having created us to love, not to contend with one another, I come to you. A barbarous prejudice has condemned you to pass your days in obscurity, far from mankind, deprived of every joy. I will make you sit down beside me. I will buckle round your waist our father's sword. Will you take advantage of this reconciliation to put down or restrain me? Will you employ that sword to spill my blood? Oh, never, I would have replied to him. I look on you as my preserver. I will respect you as my master." You give me far more than heaven bestowed, for through you I possess liberty, and the privilege of loving and being loved in this world. And you would have kept your word, Monseigneur? On my life! While now, now that I have guilty ones to punish. In what manner, Monseigneur? What do you say as to the resemblance that heaven has given me to my brother? I say that there was in that likeness a providential instruction which the king ought to have heeded. I say that your mother committed a crime in rendering those different in happiness and fortune, whom nature created so startlingly alike, of her own flesh, and I conclude that the object of punishment shall be only to restore the equilibrium. By which you mean that if I restore you to your place on your brother's throne, he shall take yours in prison. Alas! There's such infinity of suffering in prison, 
especially it would be so for one who has drunk so deeply of the cup of enjoyment. "'Your royal highness will always be free to act as you may desire, and if it seems good to you, after punishment, you will have it in your power to pardon.' "'Good. And now, are you aware of one thing, monsieur?' "'Tell me, my prince.' "'It is that I will hear nothing further from you till I am clear the Bastille. I was going to say to your highness that I should only have the pleasure of seeing you once again. And when? The day when my prince leaves these gloomy walls. Heavens! How will you give me notice of it? By myself coming to fetch you. Yourself? My prince, do not leave this chamber save with me, or if in my absence you are compelled to do so, remember that I am not concerned in it. And so I am not to speak a word of this to any one whatever, save to you? Save only to me. Aramis bowed very low. The prince offered his hand. Monsieur, he said in a tone that issued from his heart, one word more, my last. If you have sought me for my destruction, if you are only a tool in the hands of my enemies, if from our conference, in which you have sounded the depths of my mind, anything worse than captivity result, that is to say, if death befall me, still receive my blessing, for you will have ended my troubles and given me repose from the tormenting fever that has preyed on me for eight long weary years. Monseigneur, wait the results ere you judge me, said Aramis. I say that, in such a case, I bless and forgive you. If, on the other hand, you are come to restore me to that position in the sunshine of fortune and glory to which I was destined by heaven, if by your means I am enabled to live in the memory of man, and confer lustre on my race by deeds of valour, or by solid benefits bestowed upon my people, if, from my present depths of sorrow, aided by your generous hand, I raise myself to the very height of honour, then to you, whom I thank with blessings, to you will I offer half my power and my glory, though you would still be but partly recompensed, and your share must always remain incomplete, since I could not divide with you the happiness received at your hands. Monseigneur, replied Aramis, moved by the pallor and excitement of the young man, the nobleness of your heart fills me with joy and admiration. It is not you who will have to thank me, but rather the nation whom you will render happy, the posterity whose name you will make glorious. Yes, I shall indeed have bestowed upon you more than life. I shall have given you immortality. The prince offered his hand to Aramis, who sank upon his knee and kissed it. It is the first act of homage paid to our future king, said he. When I see you again, I shall say, Good day, sire. Till then, said the young man, pressing his wan and wasted fingers over his heart, till then no more dreams, no more strain on my life. My heart would break. Oh, monsieur, how small is my prison, how low the window, how narrow are the doors. To think that so much pride, splendor, and happiness 
should be able to enter in and to remain here. "'Your royal highness makes me proud,' said Aramis, "'since you infer it is I who brought all this.' And he rapped immediately on the door. The jailer came to open it with Baisemeaux, who, devoured by fear and uneasiness, was beginning, in spite of himself, to listen at the door. Happily, neither of the speakers had forgotten to smother his voice, even in the most passionate outbreaks. "'What a confessor!' said the governor, forcing a laugh. "'Who would believe that a compulsory recluse, a man as though in the very jaws of death, could have committed crimes so numerous and so long to tell of?' Aramis made no reply. He was eager to leave the Bastille, where the secret which overwhelmed him seemed to double the weight of the walls. As soon as they reached Baisemeaux's quarters, "'Let us proceed to business, my dear governor,' said Aramis. "'Alas!' replied Baisemeaux. "'You have to ask me for my receipt of one hundred and fifty thousand livres,' said the bishop. "'And to pay over the first third of the sum,' added the poor governor, with a sigh, taking three steps toward his iron strong-box. "'Here is the receipt,' said Aramis. "'And here is the money,' returned Baisemeaux, with a threefold sigh. "'The order instructed me only to give a receipt. It said nothing about receiving the money,' rejoined Aramis. "'Adieu, monsieur le governeur.' and he departed, leaving Baisemeaux almost more than stifled with joy and surprise at this regal presence so liberally bestowed by the confessor extraordinary to the Bastille. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 of The Man in the Iron Mask this LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 2 How Mouston had become fatter without giving Porthos notice thereof, and of the troubles which consequently befell that worthy gentleman. Since the departure of Athos for Blois, Porthos and D'Artagnan were seldom together. One was occupied with harassing duties for the king, the other had been making many purchases of furniture which he intended to forward to his estate, and by aid of which he hoped to establish in his various residences something of the courtly luxury he had witnessed in all its dazzling brightness in his majesty's society. D'Artagnan, ever faithful, one morning during an interval of service thought about Porthos, and being uneasy at not having heard anything of him for a fortnight, directed his steps towards his hotel, and pounced upon him, just as he was getting up. The worthy baron had a pensive—nay, more than pensive—melancholy air. He was sitting on his bed, only half-dressed, and with legs dangling over the edge, contemplating a host of garments, which, with their fringes, lace, embroidery, and slashes of ill-assorted hues, were strewed all over the floor. Porthos, sad and reflective as La Fontaine's hair, did not observe D'Artagnan's entrance, which was, moreover, screened at this moment by Monsieur Mouston, whose personal corpulency, 
quite enough at any time to hide one man from another, was effectually doubled by a scarlet coat which the intendant was holding up for his master's inspection, by the sleeves, that he might the better see it all over. D'Artagnan stopped at the threshold and looked in at the pensive Porthos, and then, as the sight of the innumerable garments strewing the floor caused mighty sighs to heave the bosom of that excellent gentleman, D'Artagnan thought it time to put an end to these dismal reflections, and coughed by way of announcing himself. "'Ah!' exclaimed Porthos, whose countenance brightened with joy. "'Ah! Ah! Here is D'Artagnan! I shall then get hold of an idea!' At these words, Mouston, doubting what was going on behind him, got out of the way, smiling kindly at the friend of his master, who thus found himself freed from the material obstacle which had prevented his reaching D'Artagnan. Porthos made his sturdy knees crack again in rising, and crossing the room in two strides, found himself face to face with his friend, whom he folded to his breast with a force of affection that seemed to increase with every day. "'Ah!' he repeated, "'you are always welcome, dear friend, but just now you are more welcome than ever.' "'But you seem to have the megrims here,' exclaimed D'Artagnan. Porthos replied by a look expressive of dejection. "'Well, then, tell me all about it, Porthos, my friend, unless it is a secret.' "'In the first place,' returned Porthos, "'you know I have no secrets from you. This, then, is what saddens me.' "'Wait a minute, Porthos. Let me first get rid of all this litter of satin and velvet.' "'Oh, never mind,' said Porthos contemptuously. "'It is all trash.' "'Trash, Porthos! Cloth at twenty-five livres an ell? Gorgeous satin! Regal velvet!' "'Then you think these clothes are splendid, Porthos, splendid! I'll wager that you alone in France have so many, and suppose you never had any more made, and were to live to be a hundred years of age—' which wouldn't astonish me in the very least, you could still wear a new dress the day of your death, without being obliged to see the nose of a single tailor from now till then. Porthos shook his head. "'Come, my friend,' said D'Artagnan, "'this unnatural melancholy in you frightens me. My dear Porthos, pray get it out then, and the sooner the better.' "'Yes, my friend, so I will, if indeed it is possible.' Perhaps you have received bad news from Brasseur? No, they have felled the wood, and it has yielded a third more than the estimate. Then there has been a falling off in the pools of Pierrefonds? No, my friend, they have been fished, and there is enough left to stock all the pools in the neighborhood. Perhaps your estate at Vallon has been destroyed by an earthquake? No, my friend, on the contrary. The ground was struck with lightning a hundred paces from the chateau, and a fountain sprung up in a place entirely destitute of water. What in the world is the matter, then? The fact is, I have received an invitation for the fete at Vaux, said Porthos, with a lugubrious expression. Well, do you complain of that? The king has caused a hundred mortal heart-burnings among the courtiers by refusing invitations, and so, my dear friend, you are really going to Vaux? Indeed I am. You will see a magnificent sight. Alas, I doubt it, though. 
everything that is grand in France will be brought together there. Ah! cried Porthos, tearing out a lock of hair in his despair. Eh? Good heavens, are you ill? cried D'Artagnan. I am as firm as the Pont Neuf. It isn't that. But what is it, then? "'Tis that I have no clothes!' D'Artagnan stood petrified. "'No clothes? Porthos, no clothes!' he cried. "'When I see at least fifty suits on the floor?' Fifty, truly, but not one which fits me.' "'What? Not one that fits you? But are you not measured, then, when you give an order?' "'To be sure he is,' answered Mouston but unfortunately I have gotten stouter. What? You stouter? So much so that I am now bigger than the baron. Would you believe it, monsieur? Parbleu! It seems to me that it is quite evident. Do you see, stupid? said Porthos. That is quite evident. Be still, my dear Porthos, resumed D'Artagnan, becoming slightly impatient. I don't understand why your clothes should not fit you, because Mouston has grown stouter. I am going to explain it, said Porthos. You remember having related to me the story of the Roman general Antony, who had always seven wild boars kept roasting, each cooked up to a different point, so that he might be able to have his dinner at any time of the day he chose to ask for it. Well, then, I resolved— as at any time I might be invited to court to spend a week, I resolved to have always seven suits ready for the occasion. Capitally reasoned, Porthos. Only a man must have a fortune like yours to gratify such whims. Without counting the time lost in being measured, the fashions are always changing. That is exactly the point, said Porthos, in regard to which I flattered myself I had hit on a very ingenious device. Tell me what it is, for I don't doubt your genius. You remember what Mouston once was, then? Yes, when he used to call himself Mousqueton. And you remember, too, the period when he began to grow fatter? No, not exactly. I beg your pardon, my good Mouston. Oh, you are not in fault, monsieur, said Mouston graciously. You were in Paris, and as for us, we were at Pierrefonds. Well, well, my dear Porthos, there was a time when Mouston began to grow fat. Is that what you wish to say? Yes, my friend, and I greatly rejoice over the period. Indeed, I believe you do, exclaimed D'Artagnan. You understand, continued Porthos, what a world of trouble it spared for me. No, I don't, by any means. Look here, my friend. In the first place, as you have said, to be measured is a loss of time, even though it occur only once a fortnight. And then, one may be travelling, and then you wish to have seven suits always with you. In short, I have a horror of letting anyone take my measure. Confound it! Either one is a nobleman or not— to be scrutinized and scanned by a fellow who completely analyzes you by inch and line. Tis degrading. Here, they find you too hollow. There, too prominent. They recognize your strong and weak points. 
See now, when we leave the measurer's hands, we are like these strongholds whose angles and different thicknesses have been ascertained by a spy. In truth, my dear Porthos, you possess ideas entirely original. Ha! You see, when a man is an engineer, and has fortified Belle-Isle, tis natural, my friend. Well, I had an idea, which would doubtless have proved a good one, but for Mouston's carelessness. D'Artagnan glanced at Mouston, who replied by a slight movement of his body, as if to say, You will see whether I am at all to blame in all this. I congratulated myself, then, resumed Porthos, at seeing Mouston get fat, and I did all I could, by means of substantial feeding, to make him stout, always in the hope that he would come to equal myself in girth, and could then be measured in my stead. Ah! cried D'Artagnan. I see, that spared you both time and humiliation. Consider my joy when, after a year and a half's judicious feeding, for I used to feed him up myself. The fellow—oh, I lent a good hand myself, monsieur," said Mouston, humbly. "'That's true. Consider my joy when, one morning, I perceived Mouston was obliged to squeeze in, as I once did myself, to get through the little secret door that those fools of architects had made in the chamber of the late Madame du Vallon in the Chateau of Pierrefonds. And, by the way, about that door, my friend, I should like to ask you, who know everything, why these wretches of architects, who ought to have the compasses run into them, just to remind them, came to make doorways through which nobody but thin people can pass. Oh, those doors, answered D'Artagnan, were meant for gallants, and they have generally slight and slender figures. Madame du Vallon had no gallant, answered Porthos majestically. "'Perfectly true, my friend,' resumed D'Artagnan. "'But the architects were probably making their calculations on a basis of the probability of your marrying again.' "'Ah! That is possible,' said Porthos. "'And now I have received an explanation of how it is that doorways are made too narrow. Let us return to the subject of Mouston's fatness.' but see how the two things apply to each other. I have always noticed that people's ideas run parallel. And so, observe this phenomenon, D'Artagnan. I was talking to you of Mouston, who is fat, and it led us on to Madame du Vallon. Who was thin? Hmm. Is it not marvellous? My dear friend, a savant of my acquaintance, Monsieur Costard, has made the same observation as you have, and he calls the process by some Greek name which I forget. What? My remark is not then original? cried Porthos, astounded. I thought I was the discoverer. My friend, the fact was known before Aristotle's days, that is to say, nearly two thousand years ago. Well, well, tis no less true said Porthos, delighted at the idea of having jumped to a conclusion so closely in agreement with the greatest sages of antiquity. Wonderfully! But suppose we return to Mouston. It seems to me we have left him fattening under our very eyes. Yes, monsieur, said Mouston. 
Well, said Porthos, Mouston fattened so well that he gratified all my hopes by reaching my standard, a fact of which I was well able to convince myself by seeing the rascal one day in a waistcoat of mine, which he had turned into a coat, a waistcoat, the mere embroidery of which was worth a hundred pistoles. "'Twas only to try it on, monsieur," said Mouston. "'From that moment I determined to put Mouston in communication with my tailors, and to have him measured instead of myself. A capital idea, Porthos, but Mouston is a foot and a half shorter than you.' "'Exactly. They measured him down to the ground, and the end of the skirt came just below my knee.' "'What a marvellous man you are, Porthos!' Such a thing could happen only to you. Ah, yes, pay your compliments. You have ample grounds to go upon. It was exactly at that time, that is to say, nearly two years and a half ago, that I set out for Belle-Isle, instructing Mouston, so as always to have, in every event, a pattern of every fashion, to have a coat made for himself every month. And did Mouston neglect complying with your instructions? Ah, that was anything but right, Mouston. No, monsieur, quite the contrary, quite the contrary. No, he never forgot to have his coats made, but he forgot to inform me that he had gotten stouter. But it was not my fault, monsieur. Your tailor never told me. And this to such an extent, monsieur, continued Porthos, that the fellow in two years has gained eighteen inches in girth, and so my last dozen coats are all too large, from a foot to a foot and a half. But the rest, those which were made when you were of the same size? They are no longer the fashion, my dear friend. Were I to put them on, I should look like a fresh arrival from Siam, and as though I had been two years away from court. I understand your difficulty. You have how many new suits? Nine? Thirty-six? And yet not one to wear. Well, you must have a thirty-seventh made, and give the thirty-six to Mouston. Ah, monsieur, said Mouston, with a gratified air, the truth is that monsieur has always been very generous to me. Do you mean to insinuate that I hadn't that idea, or that I was deterred by the expense? but it wants only two days to the fete. I received the invitation yesterday, made Mouston post hither with my wardrobe, and only this morning discovered my misfortune. And from now till the day after tomorrow there isn't a single fashionable tailor who will undertake to make me a suit. That is to say, one covered all over with gold, isn't it? I wish it so, undoubtedly all over. Oh, we shall manage it. You won't leave for three days. The invitations are for Wednesday, and this is only Sunday morning. Tis true, but Aramis has strongly advised me to be at Vaux twenty-four hours beforehand. How? Aramis? Yes, it was Aramis who brought me the invitation. Ah, to be sure, I see. You are invited on the part of Monsieur Fouquet? By no means. By the king, dear friend. The letter bears the following as large as life. Monsieur le Baron de Vallon is informed that the king has condescended to place him on the invitation list. Very good. But you leave with Monsieur Fouquet? 
and when I think, cried Porthos, stamping on the floor, when I think I shall have no clothes, I am ready to burst with rage. I should like to strangle somebody or smash something. Neither strangle anybody nor smash anything, Porthos. I will manage it all. Put on one of your thirty-six suits and come with me to a tailor. Pooh! My agent has seen them all this morning. Even Monsieur Percerin? Who is Monsieur Percerin? Oh, only the king's tailor. Oh, ah, yes, said Porthos, who wished to appear to know the king's tailor, but now heard his name mentioned for the first time. To Monsieur Percerin's, by Jove! I was afraid he would be too busy. Doubtless he will be. But be at ease, Porthos. He will do for me what he wouldn't do for another. Only you must allow yourself to be measured. Ah! said Porthos, with a sigh. "'Tis vexatious. But what would you have me do?' "'Do? As others do. As the king does.' "'What? Do they measure the king, too? Does he put up with it?' "'The king is a bow, my good friend, and so are you, too, whatever you may say about it.' Porthos smiled triumphantly. "'Let us go to the king's tailor,' he said. And since he measures the king, I think, by my faith, I may do worse than allow him to measure me. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MAN IN THE IRON MASK by Alexandre Dumas CHAPTER Three: WHO Messire JEAN Percerin WAS The king's tailor, Messire Jean Percerin, occupied a rather large house in the Rue Saint-Honoré, near the Rue de l'Arbre Sec. He was a man of great taste in elegant stuffs, embroideries, and velvets, being hereditary tailor to the king. The preferment of his house reached as far back as the time of Charles the Ninth, from whose reign dated, as we know, fancy and bravery difficult enough to gratify. The Percerin of that period was a Huguenot, like Ambrose Paré, and had been spared by the Queen of Navarre, the beautiful Margot, as they used to write and say, too, in those days, because, in sooth, he was the only one who could make for her those wonderful riding habits which she so loved to wear, seeing that they were marvellously well suited to hide certain anatomical defects, which the Queen of Navarre used very studiously to conceal. Percerin, being saved, made, out of gratitude, some beautiful black bodices, very inexpensively indeed, for Queen Catherine, who ended by being pleased at the preservation of a Huguenot people, on whom she had long looked with detestation. But Percerin was a very prudent man, and having heard it said that there were no more dangerous sign for a Protestant than to be smiled upon by Catherine, and having observed that her smiles were more frequent than usual, he speedily turned Catholic with all his family, and having thus become irreproachable, attained the lofty position of Master Taylor to the crown of France. Under Henry the Third, gay king as he was, 
this position was as grand as the height of one of the loftiest peaks of the Cordilleras. Now Percerin had been a clever man all his life, and by way of keeping up his reputation beyond the grave, took very good care not to make a bad death of it, and so contrived to die very skilfully, and that at the very moment he felt his powers of invention declining. He left a son and a daughter, both worthy of the name they were called upon to bear, the son a cutter as unerring and exact as the square rule, the daughter apt at embroidery and at designing ornaments. The marriage of Henry the Fourth and Maria de Medici, and the exquisite court mourning for the aforementioned queen, together with a few words let fall by Monsieur de Bassompierre, king of the beau of the period, made the fortune of the second generation of Percerins. Monsieur Concino Concini and his wife Galigui, who subsequently shone at the French court, sought to Italianize the fashion and introduce some Florentine tailors. But Percerin, touched to the quick in his patriotism and his self-esteem, entirely defeated these foreigners, and that so well that Concino was the first to give up his compatriots, and held the French tailor in such esteem that he would never employ any other, and thus wore a doublet of his on the very day that Vitry blew out his brains with a pistol at the Pont de Louvre. And so it was a doublet issuing from Monsieur Percerin's workshop, which the Parisians rejoiced in hacking into so many pieces with the living human body it contained. Notwithstanding the favour Concino Concini had shown Percerin, the king, Louis the Thirteenth had the generosity to bear no malice to his tailor, and to retain him in his service. At the time that Louis the Just afforded this great example of equity, Percerin had brought up two sons, one of whom made his debut at the marriage of Anne of Austria, invented that admirable Spanish costume, in which Richelieu danced a saraband, made the costumes for the tragedy of Mirame, and stitched on to Buckingham's mantle those famous pearls which were destined to be scattered about the pavements of the Louvre. A man becomes equally notable who has made the dresses of a Duke of Buckingham, a Monsieur de Saint-Mars, a Mademoiselle Ninon, a Monsieur de Beaufort, and a Marianne de Lorme. And thus Percerin III had attained the summit of his glory when his father died. This same Percerin III, old, famous, and wealthy, yet further dressed Louis the Fourteenth, and having no son, which was a great cause of sorrow to him, seeing that with himself his dynasty should end, he had brought up several hopeful pupils. He possessed a carriage, a country house, men servants the tallest in Paris, and by special authority from Louis the Fourteenth, a pack of hounds. He worked for Messieurs de Lyon and Letellier, under a sort of patronage, but politic man as he was, and versed in state secrets, he never succeeded in fitting Monsieur Colbert. This is beyond explanation. It is a matter for guessing, or for intuition. Great geniuses of every kind live on unseen, intangible ideas. They act without themselves knowing why. The great Percerin, for, contrary to the rule of dynasties, it was, above all, the last of the Percerins, who deserved the name of Great. The great Percerin was inspired when he cut a robe for the queen, or a coat for the king. He could mount a mantle for monsieur, the clock of a stocking for madame, 
but in spite of his supreme talent, he could never hit off anything approaching a creditable fit for M. Colbert. "'That man,' he used often to say, "'is beyond my art. My needle can never dot him down.' We need scarcely say that Perserins was M. Fouquet's tailor, and that the superintendent highly esteemed him. M. Perserin was nearly eighty years old, nevertheless still fresh, and at the same time so dry, the courtiers used to say, that he was positively brittle. His renown and his fortune were great enough for Monsieur le Prince, that king of fops, to take his arm when talking over the fashions, and for those least eager to pay, never to dare to leave their accounts in arrear with him, for Master Pesserin would for the first time make clothes upon credit, but the second never, unless paid for the former order. It is easy to see at once that a tailor of such renown, instead of running after customers, made difficulties about obliging any fresh ones, and so Perserin declined to fit bourgeois, or those who had but recently obtained patents of nobility. A story used to circulate that even Monsieur de Mazarin, in exchange for Perserin supplying him with a full suit of ceremonial vestments as cardinal, one fine day slipped letters of nobility into his pocket. It was to the house of this great Lama of Tailors that D'Artagnan took the despairing Porthos, who, as they were going along, said to his friend, "'Take care, my good D'Artagnan, not to compromise the dignity of a man such as I am, with the arrogance of this Perserin, who will, I expect, be very impertinent. For I give you notice, my friend, that if he is wanting in respect, I will infallibly chastise him. Presented by me, replied D'Artagnan, you have nothing to fear, even though you were what you are not. Ah, tis because... What? Have you anything against Perserin, Porthos? I think that I once sent Mouston to a fellow of that name. And then? The fellow refused to supply me. Oh, a misunderstanding, no doubt, which it will be now exceedingly easy to set right. Mouston must have made a mistake. Perhaps. He has confused the names. Possibly. That rascal Mouston never can remember names. I will take it all upon myself. Very good. Stop the carriage, Porthos. Here we are. Here? How here? We are at the hall and you told me the house was at the corner of the Rue de l'Arbre Sec. "'Tis true, but look. "'Well, I do look, and I see. "'What? "'Pardieu! "'That we are at the house. "'You do not, I suppose, want our horses to clamber up on the roof of the carriage in front of us?' "'No. "'Nor the carriage in front of us to mount on top of the one in front of it.' nor that the second should be driven over the roofs of the thirty or forty others which have arrived before us. No, you are right indeed. What a number of people! And what are they all about? Tis very simple. They are waiting their turn. Bah! Have the comedians of the Hotel de Bourgogne shifted their quarters? No, their turn to obtain an entrance to Monsieur Passerin's house. And we are going to wait, too? Oh, we shall show ourselves prompter, and not so proud. 
"'What are we to do, then?' "'Get down, pass through the footmen and lackeys, and enter the tailor's house, which I will answer for our doing, if you go first. "'Come along, then,' said Porthos. They accordingly alighted and made their way on foot towards the establishment. The cause of the confusion was that Monsieur Passerin's doors were closed, while a servant standing before them was explaining to the illustrious customers of the illustrious tailor that just then Monsieur Passerin could not receive anybody. It was bereaded about outside still, on the authority of what the great lackey had told some great noble whom he favoured, in confidence, that Monsieur Passerin was engaged on five costumes for the king, and that, owing to the urgency of the case, he was meditating in his office on the ornaments, colours, and cut of these five suits. Some, contented with this reason, went away again, contented to repeat the tale to others. But others, more tenacious, insisted on having the doors opened, and among these last three blue ribbons, intended to take parts in the ballet, which would inevitably fail unless the said three had their costumes shaped by the very hand of the great Perserin himself. D'Artagnan, pushing on Porthos, who scattered the groups of people right and left, succeeded in gaining the counter, behind which the journeyman tailors were doing their best to answer queries. We forgot to mention that at the door they wanted to put off Porthos like the rest, but D'Artagnan, showing himself, pronounced merely these words, the king's order, and was let in with his friend. The poor fellows had enough to do, and did their best, to reply to the demands of the customers in the absence of their master, leaving off drawing a stitch to knit a sentence, and when wounded pride, or disappointed expectation, brought down upon them too cutting a rebuke, he who was attacked made a dive and disappeared under the counter." the line of discontented lords formed a truly remarkable picture. Our captain of musketeers, a man of sure and rapid observation, took it all in at a glance, and having run over the groups, his eye rested on a man in front of him. This man, seated upon a stool, scarcely showed his head above the counter that sheltered him. He was about forty years of age, with a melancholy aspect, pale face, and soft, luminous eyes. He was looking at D'Artagnan and the rest, with his chin resting upon his hand, like a calm and inquiring amateur. Only on perceiving, and doubtless recognizing, our captain, he pulled his hat down over his eyes. It was this action, perhaps, that attracted D'Artagnan's attention. If so, the gentleman who had pulled down his hat produced an effect entirely different from what he had desired. In other respects his costume was plain, and his hair evenly cut enough for customers, who were not close observers, to take him for a mere tailor's apprentice, perched behind the board, and carefully stitching cloth or velvet. Nevertheless, this man held up his head too often to be very productively employed with his fingers. D'Artagnan was not deceived. Not he, and he saw at once that if this man was working at anything, it certainly was not at velvet." "'Eh!' said he, addressing this man. "'And so you have become a tailor's boy, Monsieur Moliere.' "'Hush, Monsieur d'Artagnan,' replied the man softly. "'You will make them recognize me.' "'Well, in what harm?' "'The fact is, there is no harm, but—' 
You are going to say there is no good in doing it either, is it not so? Alas, no, for I was occupied in examining some excellent figures. Go on, go on, Monsieur Moliere. I quite understand the interest you take in the plates. I will not disturb your studies. Thank you. But on one condition, that you tell me where Monsieur Percerin really is. Oh, willingly, in his own room, only... Only that one can't enter it. Unapproachable. For everybody? Everybody. He brought me here so that I might be at my ease to make my observations, and then he went away. Well, my dear Monsieur Moliere, but you will go and tell him I am here. I? exclaimed Moliere, in the tone of a courageous dog, from which you snatch the bone it has legitimately gained. I disturb myself? Ah, Monsieur d'Artagnan, how hard you are upon me! If you don't go directly and tell Monsieur Percerin that I am here, my dear Moliere, said d'Artagnan in a low tone, I warn you of one thing, that I won't exhibit to you the friend I have brought with me. Moliere indicated Porthos by an imperceptible gesture. This gentleman, is it not? Yes. Moliere fixed upon Porthos one of those looks which penetrate the minds and hearts of men. The subject doubtless appeared a very promising one, for he immediately rose and led the way into the adjoining chamber. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of The Man in the Iron Mask this LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 4 The Patterns During all this time the noble mob was slowly heaving away, leaving at every angle of the counter either a murmur or a menace as the waves leave foam or scattered seaweed on the sands, when they retire with the ebbing tide. In about ten minutes Moliere reappeared, making another sign to D'Artagnan from under the hangings. The latter hurried after him, with Porthos in the rear, and after threading a labyrinth of corridors, introduced him to Monsieur Percerin's room. The old man, with his sleeves turned up, was gathering up in folds a piece of gold-flowered brocade, so as the better to exhibit its lustre. Perceiving D'Artagnan, he put the silk aside, and came to meet him, by no means radiant with joy, and by no means courteous, but, take it altogether, in a tolerably civil manner. "'The captain of the king's musketeers will excuse me, I am sure, for I am engaged.' "'Eh, yes, on the king's costumes. <laughs> I know that, my dear Monsieur Pesserin.' You are making three, they tell me. Five, my dear sir, five. Three or five, tis all the same to me, my dear monsieur, and I know that you will make them most exquisitely. Yes, I know. Once made, they will be the most beautiful in the world. I do not deny it. But that they may be the most beautiful in the world, they must first be made. And to do this, captain, I am pressed for time. Oh, bah! There are two days yet. Tis much more than you require, Monsieur Pesserin," said D'Artagnan in the coolest possible manner. 
Percerin raised his head with the air of a man little accustomed to be contradicted, even in his whims, but D'Artagnan did not pay the least attention to the airs which the illustrious tailor began to assume. "'My dear Monsieur Percerin, he continued, "'I bring you a customer.' "'Ah! Ha!' exclaimed Percerin crossly. "'Monsieur le Baron de Vallon de Bressieux et Pierrefonds,' continued D'Artagnan. Percerin attempted a bow, which found no favour in the eyes of the terrible Porthos, who, from his first entry into the room, had been regarding the tailor askance. "'A very good friend of mine,' concluded D'Artagnan. "'I will attend to monsieur,' said Percerin, "'but later.' "'Later? But when?' "'When I have time.' "'You have already told my valets much,' broke in Porthos, discontentedly. "'Very likely,' said Percerin. "'I am nearly always pushed for time.' "'My friend,' returned Porthos, sententiously, "'there is always time to be found when one chooses to seek it.' Percerin turned crimson, an ominous sign indeed in old men blanched by age. "'Monsieur is quite at liberty to confer his custom elsewhere.' "'Come, come, Percerin,' interposed D'Artagnan. "'You are not in a good temper to-day. "'Well, I will say one more word to you, "'which will bring you on your knees. "'Monsieur is not only a friend of mine, "'but more a friend of Monsieur Fouquet's.' "'Ah! ah!' exclaimed the tailor. "'That is another thing.' "'Then turning to Porthos, "'Monsieur le Baron is attached to the superintendent?' he inquired. "'I am attached to myself!' shouted Porthos, at the very moment that the tapestry was raised to introduce a new speaker in the dialogue. Moliere was all observation. D'Artagnan laughed. Porthos swore. <laughs> "'My dear Percerin,' said D'Artagnan, "'you will make a dress for the baron. Tis I who ask you.' "'To you I will not say nay, Captain.' "'But that is not all. You will make it for him at once.' "'Tis impossible within eight days.' "'That, then, is as much as to refuse, because the dress is wanted for the fete at Vaux.' "'I repeat that it is impossible,' returned the obstinate old man. "'By no means, my dear Monsieur Percerin, above all if I ask you,' said a mild voice at the door, a silvery voice which made D'Artagnan prick up his ears. It was the voice of Aramis. "'Monsieur d'Herblay!' cried the tailor. "'Aramis!' murmured D'Artagnan. "'Ah! Our bishop!' said Porthos. "'Good morning, D'Artagnan. Good morning, Porthos. Good morning, my dear friends,' said Aramis. "'Come, come, Monsieur Passerin, make the baron's dress.' and I will answer for it, you will gratify Monsieur Fouquet. And he accompanied the words with a sign which seemed to say, Agree and dismiss them. It appeared that Aramis had over Master Percerin an influence superior even to D'Artagnan's, for the tailor bowed in assent, and turning round upon Porthos, said, Go and get measured on the other side. Porthos coloured in a formidable manner. 
D'Artagnan saw the storm coming, and addressing Moliere, said to him in an undertone, "'You see before you, my dear monsieur, a man who considers himself disgraced if you measure the flesh and bones that heaven has given him. Study this type for me, Master Aristophanes, and profit by it.' Moliere had no need of encouragement, and his gaze dwelt long and keenly on the baron Porthos. "'Monsieur,' he said, if you will come with me, I will make them take your measure without touching you. Oh, said Porthos, how do you make that out, my friend? I say that they shall apply neither line nor rule to the seams of your dress. It is a new method we have invented for measuring people of quality, who are too sensitive to allow low-born fellows to touch them. We know some susceptible people who will not put up with being measured, a process which, as I think, wounds the natural dignity of a man, and if perchance monsieur should be one of these— Corbeuf, I believe I am, too! Well, that is a capital and most consolatory coincidence, and you shall have the benefit of our invention. But how in the world can it be done? asked Porthos, delighted. Monsieur, said Moliere, bowing, if you will deign to follow me, you will see. Aramis observed this scene with all his eyes. Perhaps he fancied from D'Artagnan's liveliness that he would leave with Porthos, so as not to lose the conclusion of a scene well begun. But, clear-sighted as he was, Aramis deceived himself. Porthos and Moliere left together. D'Artagnan remained with Percerin. Why? From curiosity, doubtless? probably to enjoy a little longer the society of his good friend Aramis. As Moliere and Porthos disappeared, D'Artagnan drew near the Bishop of Vannes, a proceeding which appeared particularly to disconcert him. "'A dress for you also, is it not, my friend?' Aramis smiled. "'No,' said he. "'You will go to Vaux, however?' "'I shall go, but without a new dress.' You forget, dear D'Artagnan, that a poor bishop of Vannes is not rich enough to have new dresses for every fete. Bah! said the musketeer, laughing. And do we write no more poems now, either? Oh, D'Artagnan, exclaimed Aramis, I have long ago given up all such tomfoolery. True, repeated D'Artagnan, only half convinced. As for Percerin, he was once more absorbed in contemplation of the brocades. "'Don't you perceive,' said Aramis, smiling, "'that we are greatly boring this good gentleman, my dear D'Artagnan.' "'Ah!' murmured the musketeer, aside. "'That is, I am boring you, my friend.' <laughs> then aloud, "'Well, then, let us leave. I have no further business here, and if you are as disengaged as I, Aramis—' "'No?' Not I, I wished. Ah, you had something particular to say to Monsieur Percerin. Why did you not tell me so at once? Something particular, certainly, repeated Aramis, but not for you, D'Artagnan. But at the same time I hope you will believe that I can never have anything so particular to say that a friend like you may not hear it. Oh, no, no, I'm going said D'Artagnan, imparting to his voice an evident tone of curiosity, for Aramis's annoyance, well dissembled as it was, had not a whit escaped him, and he knew that, in that impenetrable mind, 
everything, even the most apparently trivial, was designed to some end, an unknown one, but an end that, from the knowledge he had of his friend's character, the musketeer felt must be important. On his part, Aramis saw that D'Artagnan was not without suspicion, and pressed him. "'Stay, by all means,' he said. "'This is what it is.' Then, turning towards the tailor, "'My dear Percerin,' said he, "'I am even very happy that you are here, D'Artagnan.' "'Oh, indeed!' exclaimed the Gascon, for the third time, even less deceived this time than before. Percerin never moved. Aramis roused him violently, by snatching from his hands the stuff upon which he was engaged. "'My dear Percerin,' said he, "'I have near hand Monsieur Lebrun, one of Monsieur Fouquet's painters.' "'Ah, very good,' thought D'Artagnan. "'But why Lebrun?' Aramis looked at D'Artagnan, who seemed to be occupied with an engraving of Mark Antony. "'And you wish that I should make him a dress, similar to those of the Epicureans?' answered Percerin. And while saying this in an absent manner, the worthy tailor endeavoured to recapture his piece of brocade. "'An Epicurean's dress?' asked D'Artagnan, in a tone of inquiry. "'I see,' said Aramis, with a most engaging smile. "'It is written that our dear D'Artagnan shall know all our secrets this evening. Yes, friend, you have surely heard speak of Monsieur Fouquet's Epicureans, have you not?' Undoubtedly, is it not a kind of poetical society, of which La Fontaine, Loret, Pelisson, and Moliere are members, and which holds its sittings at Saint-Mande? Exactly so. Well, we are going to put our poets in uniform, and enroll them in a regiment for the king. Oh, very well, I understand. A surprise Monsieur Fouquet is getting up for the king. <laughs> be at ease if that is the secret about monsieur lebrun i will not mention it always agreeable my friend no monsieur lebrun has nothing to do with this part of it the secret which concerns him is far more important than the other then if it is so important as all that i prefer not to know it said d'artagnan making a show of departure come in monsieur lebrun come in said Aramis, opening a side door with his right hand, and holding back D'Artagnan with his left. "'In faith, too, I am quite in the dark,' quoth Percerin. Aramis took an opportunity, as is said in theatrical matters. "'My dear Monsieur de Percerin,' Aramis continued, "'you are making five dresses for the king, are you not? One in brocade, one in hunting cloth, one in velvet, one in satin, and one in Florentine stuffs. Yes, but how, how do you know all that, Monseigneur? said Percerin, astounded. It is all very simple, my dear monsieur. There will be a hunt, a banquet, concert, promenade, and reception. These five kinds of dress are required by etiquette. You know everything, Monseigneur. "'And a thing or two in addition,' muttered D'Artagnan. "'But,' cried the tailor in triumph, "'what you do not know, Monseigneur, "'prince of the church though you are, "'what nobody will know, "'what only the king, Mademoiselle de la Valliere, 
and myself do know, is the color of the materials and nature of the ornaments, and the cut, the ensemble, and the finish of it all. Well, said Aramis, that is precisely what I have come to ask you, dear Percerin. Bah! Bah! exclaimed the tailor, terrified, though Aramis had pronounced these words in his softest and most honeyed tones. The request appeared, on reflection, so exaggerated, so ridiculous, so monstrous, to M. Percerin, that first he laughed to himself, then aloud, and finished with a shout. D'Artagnan followed his example, not because he found the matter so very funny, but in order not to allow Aramis to cool. "'At the outset I appear to be hazarding an absurd question, do I not?' said Aramis. "'But D'Artagnan, who is incarnate wisdom itself, will tell you that I could not do this otherwise than ask you this.' "'Let us see,' said the attentive musketeer, perceiving with his wonderful instinct that they had only been skirmishing till now, and that the hour of battle was approaching." "'Let us see,' said Percerin, incredulously. "'Why now,' continued Aramis, "'does Monsieur Fouquet give the king a fete? "'Is it not to please him?' "'Assuredly,' said Percerin. D'Artagnan nodded assent. "'By delicate attentions, by some happy device, "'by a succession of surprises like that of which we are talking,' the enrollment of our Epicureans. Admirable. Well, then, this is the surprise we intend. Monsieur Lebrun here is a man who draws most excellently. Yes, said Percerin, I have seen his pictures and observed that his dresses were highly elaborated. That is why I at once agreed to make him a costume, whether to agree with those of the Epicureans or an original one. My dear monsieur, we accept your offer, and shall presently avail ourselves of it. But just now, monsieur Lebrun is not in want of the dresses you will make for himself, but of those you are making for the king. Percerin made a bound backwards, which D'Artagnan, calmest and most appreciative of men, did not consider overdone, so many strange and startling aspects wore the proposal which Aramis had just hazarded. "'The king's dresses? Give the king's dresses to any mortal whatever! Oh, for once, Monseigneur, your grace is mad!' cried the poor tailor in extremity. "'Help me now, D'Artagnan,' said Aramis, more and more calm and smiling. "'Help me now to persuade, monsieur, for you understand.' do you not? Eh, eh, not exactly, I declare. What? You do not understand that Monsieur Fouquet wishes to afford the king the surprise of finding his portrait on his arrival at Vaux, and that the portrait, which be a striking resemblance, ought to be dressed exactly as the king will be on the day it is shown? Oh, yes, yes, said the musketeer, nearly convinced, so plausible was this reasoning. Yes, my dear Aramis, you are right. It is a happy idea. I will wager it is one of your own, Aramis. Well, I don't know, replied the bishop. 
either mine or Monsieur Fouquet's. Then scanning Percerin, after noticing D'Artagnan's hesitation, "'Well, Monsieur Percerin,' he asked, "'what do you say to this?' "'I say that—that that you are doubtless free to refuse. I know well, and I by no means count upon compelling you, my dear Monsieur.' I will say more. I even understand all the delicacy you feel in taking up with Monsieur Fouquet's idea. You dread appearing to flatter the king. A noble spirit, Monsieur Passerin, a noble spirit, the tailor stammered. It would indeed be a very pretty compliment to pay the young prince, continued Aramis. But as the superintendent told me, if Passerin refused, Tell him that it will not at all lower him in my opinion, and I shall always esteem him only—only? Only? repeated Percerin, rather troubled. Only, continued Aramis, I shall be compelled to say to the king, You understand, my dear Monsieur Percerin, that these are Monsieur Fouquet's words? I shall be constrained to say to the king— sire i had intended to present your majesty with your portrait but owing to a feeling of delicacy slightly exaggerated perhaps although creditable monsieur percerin opposed the project opposed cried the tailor terrified at the responsibility which would weigh upon him i to oppose the desire the will of monsieur fouquet when he is seeking to please the king Oh, what a hateful word you have uttered, Monseigneur! Oppose! Oh, tis not I who said it. Heaven have mercy on me. I call the captain of the musketeers to witness it. Is it not true, Monsieur d'Artagnan, that I have opposed nothing? D'Artagnan made a sign indicating he wished to remain neutral. He felt that there was an intrigue at the bottom of it whether comedy or tragedy, he was at his wit's end at not being able to fathom it, but in the meanwhile wished to keep clear. But already Percerin, goaded by the idea that the king was to be told he stood in the way of a pleasant surprise, had offered Lebrun a chair, and proceeded to bring from a wardrobe four magnificent dresses, the fifth being still in the workman's hands, and these masterpieces he successively fitted upon four lay figures, which, imported into France in the time of Concini, had been given to Percerin II by Marshal Donor. after the discomfiture of the Italian tailors ruined in their competition. The painter set to work to draw, and then to paint the dresses. But Aramis, who was closely watching all the phases of his toil, suddenly stopped him. I think you have not quite got it, my dear Lebrun, he said. Your colors will deceive you, and on canvas we shall lack that exact resemblance which is absolutely requisite. Time is necessary for attentively observing the finer shades. Quite true, said Percerin, but time is wanting, and on that head you will agree with me, Monseigneur, I can do nothing." then the affair will fail said aramis quietly and that because of a want of precision in the colors nevertheless lebrun went on copying the materials and ornaments with the closest fidelity a process which aramis watched with ill-concealed impatience 
"'What in the world now is the meaning of this imbroglio?' the musketeer kept saying to himself. "'That will never do,' said Aramis. "'Monsieur Lebrun, close your box and roll up your canvas.' "'But, monsieur,' cried the vexed painter, "'the light is abominable here.' "'An idea, monsieur Lebrun, an idea. "'If we had a pattern of the materials, for example, "'and with time, at a better light.' "'Oh, then,' cried Lebrun, "'I would answer for the effect.' "'Good,' said D'Artagnan. "'This ought to be the knotty point of the whole thing. "'They want a pattern of each of the materials. Dieu, will this Perceron give in now?' Perceron, beaten from his last retreat, and duped, moreover, by the feigned good nature of Aramis, cut out five patterns and handed them to the Bishop of Vannes. "'I like this better. "'That is your opinion, is it not?' said Aramis to D'Artagnan. "'My dear Aramis,' said D'Artagnan, "'my opinion is that you are always the same. "'And consequently, always your friend,' said the bishop in a charming tone. "'Yes, yes,' said D'Artagnan aloud. Then, in a low voice, "'If I am your dupe, double Jesuit that you are, "'I will not be your accomplice, "'and to prevent it, tis time I left this place.' Adieu, Aramis, he added aloud. Adieu. I am going to rejoin Porthos. Then wait for me, said Aramis, pocketing the patterns, for I have done, and shall be glad to say a parting word to our dear old friend. Lebrun packed up his paints and brushes. Percerin put back the dresses into the closet. Aramis put his hand on his pocket to assure himself the patterns were secure, and they all left the study. End of chapter. Chapter 5 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 5 where, probably, Moliere obtained his first idea of the bourgeois gentilhomme. D'Artagnan found Porthos in the adjoining chamber, but no longer an irritated Porthos, or a disappointed Porthos, but Porthos radiant, blooming, fascinating, and chattering with Moliere, who was looking upon him with a species of idolatry, and as a man would who had not only never seen anything greater, but not even ever anything so great. Aramis went straight up to Porthos and offered him his white hand, which lost itself in the gigantic clasp of his old friend, an operation which Aramis never hazarded without a certain uneasiness. But the friendly pressure having been performed not too painfully for him, the Bishop of Vannes passed over to Moliere. "'Well, monsieur,' said he, "'will you come with me to Saint-Mande?' "'I will go anywhere you like, Monseigneur,' answered Moliere. "'To Saint-Mande!' cried Porthos, surprised at seeing the proud Bishop of Vannes fraternizing with a journeyman tailor. "'What, Aramis, are you going to take this gentleman to Saint-Mande?' "'Yes,' said Aramis, smiling. "'Our work is pressing.' 
and besides my dear porthos continued d'artagnan monsieur moliere is not altogether what he seems in what way asked porthos why this gentleman is one of monsieur percerin's chief clerks and is expected at Saint-Mande to try on the dresses which M. Fouquet has ordered for the Epicureans. "'Tis precisely so,' said Moliere. "'Yes, monsieur.' "'Come, then, my dear Monsieur Moliere,' said Aramis. "'That is, if you have done with M. de Vallon.' "'We have finished,' replied Porthos. "'And you are satisfied?' asked D'Artagnan. "'Completely so,' replied Porthos. Moliere took his leave of Porthos with much ceremony, and grasped the hand which the captain of the musketeers furtively offered him. "'Pray, monsieur,' concluded Porthos, mincingly, "'above all, be exact.' "'You will have your dress the day after to-morrow, monsieur le baron,' answered Moliere, and he left with Aramis." Then D'Artagnan, taking Porthos's arm, "'What has this tailor done for you, my dear Porthos?' he asked, "'that you are so pleased with him.' "'What has he done for me, my friend? <laughs> done for me!' cried Porthos enthusiastically. "'Yes, I ask you, what has he done for you?' "'My friend, he has done that which no tailor ever yet accomplished. He has taken my measure without touching me.' ah bah tell me how he did it first then they went i don't know where for a number of lay figures of all heights and sizes hoping there would be one to suit mine but the largest that of the drum major of the swiss guard was two inches too short and a half foot too narrow in the chest indeed it is exactly as i tell you d'artagnan but he is a great man or at the very least a great tailor is this monsieur moliere he was not at all put at fault by the circumstance what did he do then oh it is a very simple matter if faith it is an unheard-of thing that people should have been so stupid as not to have discovered this method from the first what annoyance and humiliation they would have spared me not to mention of the costumes my dear porthos yes thirty dresses well my dear porthos come tell me monsieur moliere's plan moliere you call him so do you i shall make a point of recollecting his name yes or poquelin if you prefer that no i like moliere best when i wish to recollect his name i shall think of voliere which is an aviary and as I have one at Pierrefonds, capital, returned D'Artagnan, and Monsieur Moliere's plan? Tis this, instead of pulling me to pieces, as all these rascals do, of making me bend my back and double my joints, all of them low and dishonorable practices, D'Artagnan made a sign of approbation with his head. Monsieur, he said to me, continued Porthos, a gentleman ought to measure himself. Do me the pleasure to draw near this glass. And I drew near the glass. I must own I did not exactly understand what this good Monsieur Voliere wanted with me. Moliere. Ah, yes, Moliere. Moliere. 
and as the fear of being measured still possessed me, take care, said I to him, what you are going to do with me. I am very ticklish, I warn you. But he, with his soft voice, for he is a courteous fellow, we must admit, my friend, he, with his soft voice, Monsieur, said he, that your dress may fit you well, it must be made according to your figure. Your figure is exactly reflected in this mirror. We shall take the measure of this reflection. In fact, said D'Artagnan, you saw yourself in the glass, but where did they find one in which you could see your whole figure? My good friend, it is the very glass in which the king is used to look to see himself. Yes, but the king is a foot and a half shorter than you are. Ah, well, I know not how that may be. It is, no doubt, a cunning way of flattering the king, but the looking-glass was too large for me. Tis true that its height was made up of three Venetian plates of glass, placed one above another, and its breadth of three similar parallelograms in juxtaposition. Oh, Porthos, what excellent words you have command of! Where in the world did you acquire such a voluminous vocabulary? At Belle-Isle. Aramis and I had to use such words in our strategic studies and castramentative experiments. D'Artagnan recoiled, as though the sesquipedalian syllables had knocked the breath out of his body. Ah, very good. Let us return to the looking-glass, my friend. Then this good Monsieur Voliere, Moliere. Yes, Moliere, you are right. You will see now, my dear friend, that I shall recollect his name quite well. This excellent Monsieur Moliere set to work tracing out lines on the mirror with a piece of Spanish chalk, following on all the make of my arms and my shoulders, all the while expounding this maxim, which I thought admirable. It is advisable that a dress should not incommode its wearer. In reality, said D'Artagnan, that is an excellent maxim which is, unfortunately, seldom carried out in practice. That is why I found it all the more astonishing, when he expatiated upon it. Ah, he expatiated. Parbleu! Let me hear his theory. Seeing that, he continued, one may, in awkward circumstances, or in a troublesome position, have one's doublet on one's shoulder, and not desire to take one's doublet off. True, said D'Artagnan. And so, continued Monsieur Voliere, Moliere, Moliere, yes. And so, went on Monsieur Moliere, you want to draw your sword, Monsieur, and you have your doublet on your back. What do you do? I take it off, I answered. Well, no, he replied. How no? I say that the dress should be so well made that it will in no way encumber you, even in drawing your sword. Ha! Ha! Throw yourself on guard, pursued he. I did it with such wondrous firmness that two panes of glass burst out of the window. Tis nothing, nothing, said he. Keep your position. I raised my left arm in the air, the forearm gracefully bent, the ruffle drooping, and my wrist curved, while my right arm, half extended, securely covered my wrist with the elbow, and my breast with the wrist. Yes, said D'Artagnan, tis the true guard, 
the academic guard. "'You have said the very word, dear friend. In the meanwhile, Voliere, Moliere, hold. I should certainly, after all, prefer to call him. What did you say his other name was?' Pocalin. "'I prefer to call him Pocalin. "'And how will you remember this name better than the other?' "'You understand he calls himself Pocalin, does he not?' "'Yes.' "'If I were to call to mind Madame Coquenard.' "'Good. "'And change Coq into Poc, Nard into Lin, "'and instead of Coquenard I shall have Pocalin.' "'Tis wonderful!' cried D'Artagnan, astounded. Go on, my friend, I am listening to you with admiration. This Coquelin sketched my arm on the glass. I beg your pardon, Poquelin. What did I say, then? You said Coquelin. Ha, true. This Poquelin, then, sketched my arm on the glass. But he took his time over it. He kept looking at me a good deal. The fact is that I must have been looking particularly handsome. "'Does it weary you?' he asked. "'A little,' I replied, bending a little in my hands. "'But I could hold out for an hour or so longer?' "'No, no, I will not allow it. The willing fellows will make it a duty to support your arms, as of old. Men supported those of the prophet.' "'Very good,' I answered. "'That will not be humiliating to you?' "'My friend,' said I, "'there is, I think, a great difference between being supported and being measured.' "'The distinction is full of the soundest sense,' interrupted D'Artagnan. "'Then,' continued Porthos, "'he made a sign. Two lads approached, one supported my left arm, while the other, with infinite address, supported my right.' "'Another, my man!' cried he. A third approached. "'Support, monsieur, by the waist,' said he. The garçon complied. "'So that you were at rest?' asked D'Artagnan. "'Perfectly. And Poquenard drew me on the glass.' "'Poquelin, my friend.' "'Poquelin, you are right. Stay. Decidedly I prefer calling him Voliere.' "'Yes. And then it was over, wasn't it?' During that time Voliere drew me as I appeared in the mirror. "'Twas delicate in him. "'I much like the plan. It is respectful, and keeps every one in his place.' "'And there it ended?' "'Without a soul having touched me, my friend.' "'Except the three garçons who supported you?' "'Doubtless. But I have, I think, already explained to you the difference there is between supporting and measuring.' "'Tis true,' answered D'Artagnan, who said afterwards to himself, "'In faith I greatly deceive myself, or I have been the means of a good windfall to that rascal Moliere, and we shall assuredly see the scene hit off to the life, in some comedy or other.' Porthos smiled. "'What are you laughing at?' asked D'Artagnan. "'Must I confess? Well, I was laughing over my good fortune.' Oh, that is true. I don't know a happier man than you. But what is this last piece of luck that has befallen you? Well, my dear fellow, congratulate me. I desire nothing better. 
It seems that I am the first who has had his measure taken in that manner. Are you so sure of it? Nearly so. Certain signs of intelligence which pass between Voliere and the other garçons show me the fact. Well, my friend, that does not surprise me from Moliere, said D'Artagnan. Voliere, my friend. Oh, no, no, indeed. I am very willing to leave you to go on saying Voliere, but as for me, I shall continue to say Moliere. Well, this, I was saying, does not surprise me coming from Moliere, who is a very ingenious fellow, and inspired you with this grand idea. It will be of great use to him by and by, I am sure. Won't it be of use to him indeed? I believe you it will, and that in the highest degree. For, you see, my friend Moliere is of all known tailors the man who best clothes our barons, comtes, and marquises, according to their measure. On this observation, neither the application nor depth of which we shall discuss, D'Artagnan and Porthos quitted Monsieur de Pesserin's house and rejoined their carriages, wherein we will leave them in order to look after Moliere and Aramis at Salmon. End of chapter. Chapter six of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter six The Beehive, the Bees, and the Honey. The Bishop of Vannes, much annoyed at having met D'Artagnan at Monsieur Pesserin's, returned Saint-Mande in no very good humour. Moliere, on the other hand, quite delighted at having made such a capital rough sketch, and at knowing where to find the original again, whenever he should desire to convert his sketch into a picture, Moliere arrived in the merriest of moods. All the first story of the left wing was occupied by the most celebrated epicureans in Paris, and those on the freest footing in the house, every one in his compartment, like the bees in their cells, employed in producing the honey intended for that royal cake which Monsieur Fouquet proposed to offer His Majesty Louis the Fourteenth during the fete at Vaux. Pelisson, his head leaning on his hand, was engaged in drawing out the plan of the prologue to the Facheux, a comedy in three acts, which was to be put on the stage by Poquelin de Moliere, as D'Artagnan called him, or Coquelin de Foliere, as Porthos styled him. Loret, with all the charming innocence of a gazetteer, the gazetteers of all ages have always been so artless, Loret was composing an account of the fêtes at Vaux, before those fêtes had taken place. La Fontaine sauntered about from one to the other, a peripatetic, absent-minded, boring, unbearable dreamer, who kept buzzing and humming at everybody's elbow a thousand poetic abstractions. He so often disturbed Pelisson that the latter, raising his head, crossly said, "'At least, La Fontaine, supply me with a rhyme, since you have the run of the gardens at Panassus.' "'What rhyme do you want?' asked the fabler, as Madame de Savine used to call him. I want a rhyme to Lumiere. Onier, answered La Fontaine. 
Ah, but my good friend, one cannot talk of wheel ruts when celebrating the delights of Vaux, said Locheray. Besides, it doesn't rhyme, answered Pelisson. What, doesn't rhyme? cried La Fontaine in surprise. Yes, you have an abominable habit, my friend, a habit which will ever prevent your becoming a poet of the first order. You rhyme in a slovenly manner. Oh! Oh, you think so, do you, Pelisson? Yes, I do, indeed. Remember that a rhyme is never good so long as one can find a better. Then I will never write anything again save in prose, said La Fontaine, who had taken up Pelisson's reproach in earnest. Ah, I often suspected I was nothing but a rascally poet. Yes, tis the very truth. Do not say so. Your remark is too sweeping and there is much that is good in your fables. And to begin, continued La Fontaine, following up his idea, I will go and burn a hundred verses I have just made. Where are your verses? In my head. Well, if they are in your head, you cannot burn them. True, said La Fontaine, but if I do not burn them, well, what will happen if you do not burn them? They will remain in my mind, and I shall never forget them. The deuce! cried Lohray. What a dangerous thing! One would go mad with it. The deuce! The deuce! repeated La Fontaine. What can I do? I have discovered the way, said Moliere, who had entered just at this point of the conversation. What way? Write them first, and burn them afterwards. How simple! Well, I should never have discovered that. What a mind that devil of a Moliere has, said La Fontaine. Then, striking his forehead, Oh, thou wilt never be aught but an ass, Jean La Fontaine, he added. What are you saying there, my friend? broke in Moliere, approaching the poet, whose aside he had heard. I say I shall never be aught but an ass answered La Fontaine, with a heavy sigh and swimming eyes. "'Yes, my friend,' he added, with increasing grief, "'it means that I rhyme in a slovenly manner.' "'Oh, tis wrong to say so.' "'Nay, I am a poor creature.' "'Who said so?' "'Pableu, t'was Pelisson, did you not, Pelisson?' Pelisson, again absorbed in his work, took good care not to answer." "'But if Pelisson said you were so?' cried Meliere. "'Pelisson has seriously offended you.' "'Do you think so?' "'Ah! I advise you, as you are a gentleman, not to leave an insult like that unpunished.' "'What?' exclaimed La Fontaine. "'Did you ever fight?' "'Once only, with the lieutenant in the light horse.' "'What wrong had he done you?' It seems he ran away with my wife. Ah! Ah! said Moliere, becoming slightly pale, but as, at Lanfontaine's declaration, the others had turned round, Moliere kept upon his lips the rallying smile which had so nearly died away, and continuing to make Lafontaine speak. And what was the result of the duel? The result was that on the ground my opponent disarmed me, and then made an apology, promising never again to set foot in my house. "'And you consider yourself satisfied?' 
said Moliere. Not at all. On the contrary, I picked up my sword. I beg your pardon, monsieur, I said. I have not fought you because you were my wife's friend, but because I was told I ought to fight. So, as I have never known any peace, save since you made her acquaintance, do me the pleasure to continue your visits as heretofore, or, more blur, let us set to again. And so, continued La Fontaine, he was compelled to resume his friendship with Madame, and I continue to be the happiest of husbands. <laughs> All burst out laughing. Moliere alone passed his hand across his eyes. Why? Perhaps to wipe away a tear perhaps to smother a sigh. Alas, we know that Moliere was a moralist, but he was not a philosopher. "'Tis all one,' he said, returning to the topic of the conversation. "'Pelisson has insulted you.' "'Ah, truly, I had already forgotten it.' "'And I am going to challenge him on your behalf.' "'Well, you can do so, if you think it indispensable.' "'I do think it indispensable, and I am going to—' "'Stay!' exclaimed La Fontaine. "'I want your advice.' "'Upon what? This insult?' "'No, tell me really now whether Lumière does not rhyme with Ornière.' "'I should make them rhyme.' "'Ah! I knew you would.' "'And I have made a hundred thousand such rhymes in my time.' "'A hundred thousand! cried La Fontaine, four times as many as La Pucelle, which M. Chaplain is meditating. Is it also on this subject, too, that you have composed a hundred thousand verses? Listen to me, you eternally absent-minded creature, said Moliere. It is certain, continued La Fontaine, that legume, for instance, rhymes with postume. In the plural above all. Yes, above all in the plural, seeing that then it rhymes not with three letters, but with four, as Ornière does with Lumière. But give me Ornière and Lumière in the plural, my dear Pelisson, said La Fontaine, clapping his hand on the shoulder of his friend, whose insult he had quite forgotten, and they will rhyme. Hem, <laughs> coughed Pelisson. Moliere says so, and Moliere is a judge of such things. He declares he has himself made a hundred thousand verses. Come, said Moliere, laughing. He is off now. It is like rivage, which rhymes admirably with herbage. I would take my oath of it. But, said Moliere, I tell you all this, continued La Fontaine, because you are preparing a divertissement for Vaux, are you not? Yes, the fâcheux. Oh, yes, the fâcheur, yes, I recollect. Well, I was thinking a prologue would admirably suit your divertissement. Doubtless it would suit capitally. Ah, you are of my opinion? So much so that I have asked you to write this very prologue. You asked me to write it? Yes, you, and on your refusal begged you to ask Pelisson, who is engaged upon it at this moment. Ah, that is what Pelisson is doing, then. In faith, my dear Moliere, you are indeed often right. When? When you call me absent-minded. It is a monstrous defect. I will cure myself of it and do your prologue for you. 
But inasmuch as Pelisson is about it. Ah, true, miserable rascal that I am. Loret was indeed right in saying I was a poor creature. It was not Loret who said so, my friend. Well, then, whoever said so, tis the same to me. And so your divertissement is called the Fascheur? Well, can you make heureux rhyme with Fascheur? If obliged, yes. And even with Capriceur? Oh, no, no. It would be hazardous, and yet why so? There is too great a difference in the cadences. I was fancying, said La Fontaine, leaving Moliere for Loret, I was fancying. What were you fancying? said Loret in the middle of a sentence. Make haste. You are writing the prologue to the Fascheur, are you not? No, Mordieu, it is Pelisson. Ah, Pelisson, cried La Fontaine, going over to him. I was fancying, he continued, that the nymph of Vaux. Ah, beautiful, cried Loret, the nymph of Vaux. Thank you, La Fontaine. You have just given me the two concluding verses of my paper. Well, if you can rhyme so well, La Fontaine, said Pelisson, tell me now in what way you would begin my prologue. I should say, for instance, O oh, nymph who, uh, after who I should place a verb in the second person singular of the present indicative, and should go on thus, this grot profound. Uh, but the verb, the verb, asked Pelisson. To admire the greatest king of all kings round, continued La Fontaine. But the verb, the verb, obstinately insisted Pelisson. This second person in singular of the present indicative? Well then, quittest. O oh, nymph, who quittest now this grot profound, to admire the greatest king of all kings round. You would not put who quittest, would you? Why not? Quittest after you who? Ah, my dear fellow, exclaimed La Fontaine, you are a shocking pedant. Without counting, said Moliere, that the second verse, king of all kings round, is very weak, my dear La Fontaine. Then you see I am nothing but a poor creature, a shuffler, as you said. I never said so. Then, as Loret said. And it was not Loret either, it was Pelisson. Well, Pelisson was right a hundred times over. But what annoys me more than anything, my dear Moliere, is that I fear we shall not have our Epicurean dresses. You expected yours, then, for the fete? Yes, for the fete, and then for after the fete. My housekeeper told me that my own is rather faded. Diable! Your housekeeper is right, rather more than faded. Ah, you see, returned La Fontaine, the fact is, I left it on the floor in my room, and my cat. Well, your cat? She made her nest upon it, which has rather changed its color. Moliere burst out laughing. Pelisson and Loret followed his example. At this juncture the Bishop of Vannes appeared, with a roll of plans and parchments under his arm. 
as if the angel of death had chilled all gay and sprightly fancies, as if that wan form had scared away the graces to whom Xenocrates sacrificed, silence immediately reigned through the study, and every one resumed his self-possession and his pen. Aramis distributed the notes of invitation, and thanked them in the name of Monsieur Fouquet. "'The superintendent,' he said, "'being kept to his room by business, could not come and see them, but begged them to send him some of the fruits of their day's work, to enable him to forget the fatigue of his labour in the night.' At these words all settled down to work. La Fontaine placed himself at a table, and set his rapid pen an endless dance across the smooth white vellum. Pelisson made a fair copy of his prologue. Moliere contributed fifty fresh verses, with which his visit to Passerin had inspired him. Loret, an article on the marvellous fêtes he predicted, and Aramis, laden with his booty like the king of the bees, that great black drone, decked with purple and gold re-entered his apartment, silent and busy. But before departing, "'Remember, gentlemen,' said he, "'we leave to-morrow evening.' "'In that case I must give notice at home,' said Moliere. "'Yes, poor Moliere,' said Loret, smiling. "'He loves his home.' "'He loves, yes,' replied Moliere, with his sad, sweet smile. "'He loves. That does not mean—' they love him. As for me, said La Fontaine, they love me at Chateau Thierry, I am very sure. Aramis here re-entered after a brief disappearance. Will any one go with me? he asked. I am going by Paris, after having passed a quarter of an hour with Monsieur Fouquet. I offer my carriage. Good, said Moliere. I accept it. I am in a hurry. I shall dine here, said Loret. Monsieur de Gourville has promised me some crawfish. He has promised me some whitings. Find a rhyme for that, La Fontaine. Aramis went out laughing, as only he could laugh, and Moliere followed him. They were at the bottom of the stairs when La Fontaine opened the door and shouted out, He has promised us some whitings in return for these our writings. The shouts of laughter reached the ears of Fouquet at the moment Aramis opened the door of his study. As to Moliere, he had undertaken to order the horses, while Aramis went to exchange a parting word with the superintendent. "'Oh, how they are laughing there!' said Fouquet, with a laugh. "'Do you not laugh, Monseigneur?' "'I laugh no longer now, Monsieur d'Herblay. The fête is approaching, money is departing.' Have I not told you that that was my business? Yes, you promised me millions. You shall have them the day after the king's entree into Vaux. Fouquet looked closely at Aramis, and passed the back of his icy hand across his moistened brow. Aramis perceived that the superintendent either doubted him, or felt he was powerless to obtain the money. How could Fouquet suppose that a poor bishop, ex-abbe, ex-musketeer, could find any. "'Why doubt me?' said Aramis. Fouquet smiled and shook his head. "'Man of little faith,' added the bishop. "'My dear Monsieur d'Herblay,' answered Fouquet, "'if I fall—' 
"'Well, if you fall?' "'I shall at least fall from such a height "'that I shall shatter myself in falling.' "'Then giving himself a shake, "'as though to escape from himself. "'Whence came you?' said he. "'My friend.' "'From Paris, from Perserin. "'And what have you been doing at Perserin's? "'For I suppose you attach no great importance "'to our poet's dresses.' No, I went to prepare a surprise. Surprise? Yes, which you are going to give to the king. And will it cost much? Oh, a hundred pistoles you will give Lebrun. A painting? Ah, all the better. And what is this painting to represent? I will tell you. Then at the same time, whatever you may say or think of it, I went to see the dresses for our poets. Bah! And they will be rich and elegant? Splendid! There will be few great monseigneurs with so good. People will see the difference there is between the courtiers of wealth and those of friendship. Ever generous and grateful, dear prelate. In your school. Fouquet grasped his hand. And where are you going? he said. I am off to Paris, when you shall have given a certain letter. For whom? Monsieur de Lyon. And what do you want with Lyon? I wish to make him sign a lettre de cachet. Lettre de cachet? Do you desire to put somebody in the Bastille? On the contrary, to let somebody out. And who? A poor devil. A youth, a lad who has been Bastilled these ten years, for two Latin verses he made against the Jesuits. Two Latin verses? And for two Latin verses the miserable being has been imprisoned for ten years? Yes. And has committed no other crime? Beyond this, he is as innocent as you or I. On your word? On my honour. And his name is? Selden. Yes. Uh, but it is too bad. You knew this, and you never told me. T'was only yesterday his mother applied to me, Monseigneur. And the woman is poor. In the deepest misery. Heaven, said Fouquet, sometimes bears with such injustice on earth that I hardly wonder there are wretches who doubt of its existence. "'Stay, Monsieur d'Herblay.' And Fouquet, taking a pen, wrote a few rapid lines to his colleague, Lyon. Aramis took the letter and made ready to go. "'Wait,' said Fouquet. He opened his drawer and took out ten government notes which were there, each for a thousand francs. "'Stay,' he said. "'Set the son at liberty, and give this to the mother. But above all, do not tell her.' "'What, Monseigneur?' that she is ten thousand livres richer than I. She would say I am but a poor superintendent. Go, and I pray that God will bless those who are mindful of his poor. So also do I pray, replied Aramis, kissing Fouquet's hand. And he went out quickly, carrying off the letter for Lyon and the notes for Selden's mother, and taking up Moliere, who was beginning to lose patience. End of chapter.
Chapter Seven of the Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Seven. Another Supper at the Bastille. Seven o'clock sounded from the great clock of the Bastille, that famous clock which like all the accessories of the state prison, the very use of which is a torture, recalled to the prisoners' minds the destination of every hour of their punishment. The timepiece of the Bastille, adorned with figures, like most of the clocks of the period, represented St. Peter in bonds. It was the supper hour of the unfortunate captives. The doors, grating on their enormous hinges, opened for the passage of the baskets and trays of provisions, the abundance and the delicacy of which, as M. de Baisemeaux has himself taught us, was regulated by the condition in life of the prisoner. We understand on this head the theories of M. de Baisemeaux, sovereign dispenser of gastronomic delicacies, head cook of the royal fortress, whose trays full laden were ascending the steep staircases, carrying some consolation to the prisoners in the shape of honestly filled bottles of good vintages. The same hour was that of Monsieur le Gouverneur's supper also. He had a guest to-day, and the spit turned more heavily than usual. Roast partridges, flanked with quails and flanking a larded leveret, boiled fowls, hams, fried and sprinkled with white wine, cardons of guipuscoa and la bisque et cravisse, these, together with soups and hors d'oeuvres, constituted the governor's bill of fare. Baisemeaux, seated at table, was rubbing his hands and looking at the Bishop of Vannes, who, booted like a cavalier, dressed in grey and sword at side, kept talking of his hunger and testifying the liveliest impatience. Monsieur de Baisemeaux de Montlezun was not accustomed to the unbending movements of his greatness, my lord of Vannes, and this evening Aramis, becoming sprightly, volunteered confidence on confidence the prelate had again a little touch of the musketeer about him. The bishop just trenched on the borders only of license in his style of conversation. As for Monsieur de Baisemeaux, with the facility of vulgar people, he gave himself up entirely upon this point of his guest's freedom. Monsieur, said he, for indeed to-night I dare not call you Monseigneur. By no means, said Aramis, Call me monsieur, I am booted. Do you know, monsieur, of whom you remind me this evening? No, faith, said Aramis, taking up his glass, but I hope I remind you of a capital guest. You remind me of two, monsieur. Francois, shut the window, the wind may annoy his greatness. And let him go, added Aramis. The supper is completely served, and we shall eat it very well without waiters. I like exceedingly to be tete-a-tete -tete when I am with a friend. Baisemeaux bowed respectfully. I like exceedingly, continued Aramis, to help myself. Retire, Francois, cried Baisemeaux. I was saying that your greatness puts me in mind of two persons, one very illustrious, the late cardinal, the great Cardinal de la Rochelle, who wore boots like you. 
Indeed, said Aramis, and the other? The other was a certain musketeer, very handsome, very brave, very adventurous, very fortunate, who from being abbe turned musketeer, and from musketeer turned abbe. Aramis condescended to smile. From abbe, continued Baisemeaux, encouraged by Aramis's smile, from abbe, bishop, and from bishop. Ah, stay there, I beg, exclaimed Aramis. I have just said, monsieur, that you gave me the idea of a cardinal. Enough, dear monsieur Baisemeaux. As you said, I have on the boots of a cavalier, but I do not intend for all that to embroil myself with the church this evening. But you have wicked intentions, nevertheless, monseigneur. Oh, yes, wicked, I own, as everything mundane is. You traverse the town and the streets in disguise? In disguise, as you say. And you still make use of your sword? Yes, I should think so, but only when I am compelled. Do me the pleasure to summon Francois. Have you no wine there? It is not for wine, but because it is hot here and the window is shut. I shut the windows at supper-time, so as not to hear the sounds of the arrival of couriers. Ah, yes. You hear them when the window is open? But too well, and that disturbs me. You understand? Nevertheless, I am suffocated. Francois. Francois entered. Open the windows, I pray you, Master Francois, said Aramis. You will allow him, dear Monsieur Baisemeaux? You are at home here, answered the governor. The window was opened. Do you not think, said Monsieur de Baisemeaux, that you will find yourself very lonely, now Monsieur de la Fere has returned to his household gods at Blois? He is a very old friend, is he not? You know it as I do, Baisemeaux, seeing that you were in the musketeers with us, Bah! With my friends I reckon neither bottles of wine nor years. And you are right. But I do more than love Monsieur de la Fere, dear Baisemeaux. I venerate him. Well, for my part, though tis singular, said the governor, I prefer Monsieur d'Artagnan to him. There is a man for you, who drinks long and well. That kind of people allow you at least to penetrate their thoughts. Baisemeaux, make me tipsy to-night. Let us have a merry time of it as of old. And if I have a trouble at the bottom of my heart, I promise you, you shall see it as you would a diamond in the bottom of your glass. Bravo! said Baisemeaux, and he poured out a great glass of wine and drank it off at a draught, trembling with joy at the idea of being by hook or by crook, in the secret of some high archiepiscopal misdemeanor. While he was drinking, he did not see with what attention Aramis was noting the sounds in the great court. A courier came in about eight o'clock, as Francois brought in the fifth bottle, and although the courier made a great noise, Baisemeaux heard nothing. "'The devil take him,' said Aramis. "'What? Who?' asked Baisemeaux. I hope tis neither the wine you drank, nor he who is the cause of your drinking it. 
No, it is a horse who is making noise enough in the court for a whole squadron. Pooh, some courier or other, replied the governor, redoubling his attention to the passing bottle. Yes, and may the devil take him, and so quickly that we shall never hear him speak more. Hurrah, hurrah! You forget me, Baisemeaux. My glass is empty, said Aramis, lifting his dazzling Venetian goblet. Upon my honor, you delight me. Francois, wine! Francois entered. Wine, fellow, and better. Yes, monsieur, yes, but a courier has just arrived. Let him go to the devil, I say. Yes, monsieur, but— Let him leave his news at the office. We will see to it to-morrow. Tomorrow, there will be time to-morrow, there will be daylight, said Baisemeaux, chanting the words. Ah, monsieur, grumbled the soldier Francois, in spite of himself, monsieur. Take care, said Aramis, take care. Of what, dear monsieur d'Ablay, said Baisemeaux, half intoxicated. The letter which the courier brings to the governor of a fortress is sometimes an order. Nearly always. Do not orders issue from the ministers? Yes, undoubtedly, but... And what do these ministers do but countersign the signature of the king? Perhaps you are right. Nevertheless, tis very tiresome when you are sitting before a good table, tete-a-tete with a friend... Ah, I beg your pardon, monsieur. I forgot it is I who engage you at supper, and that I speak to a future cardinal. Let us pass over that, dear Baisemeaux, and return to our soldier, to Francois. Well, and what has Francois done? He has demurred. He was wrong, then? However, he has demurred, you see, "'Tis because there is something extraordinary in this matter. "'It is very possible that it was not Francois who was wrong in demurring, "'but you, who are in the wrong in not listening to him.' "'Wrong? I to be wrong before Francois? "'That seems rather hard.' "'Pardon me, merely an irregularity, "'but I thought it my duty to make an observation which I deem important.' "'Oh, oh! "'Perhaps you are right,' stammered Baisemeaux. "'The king's order is sacred, but as to orders that arrive when one is at supper, I repeat that the devil—if you had said as much to the great cardinal, <clears throat> my dear Baisemeaux, and if his order had any importance—I do it that I may not disturb a bishop. Mordieu! Am I not, then, excusable?' "'Do not forget, Baisemeaux that I have worn the soldier's coat, and I am accustomed to obedience everywhere. You wish, then? I wish that you would do your duty, my friend. Yes, at least before this soldier. "'Tis mathematically true,' exclaimed Baisemeaux. Francois still waited. "'Let them send this order of the kings up to me,' he repeated, recovering himself, and he added in a low tone, do you know what it is? I will tell you something about as interesting as this. Beware of fire near the powder magazine, or, 
Look close after such and such a one who is clever at escaping. Ha! <laughs> if you only knew, Monseigneur, how many times I have been suddenly awakened from the very sweetest, deepest slumber, by messengers arriving at full gallop to tell me, or rather bring me a slip of paper containing these words, Monsieur de Baisemeaux, what news? Tis clear enough that those who waste their time writing such orders have never slept in the Bastille. They would know better. They have never considered the thickness of my walls, the vigilance of my officers, the number of rounds we go. But indeed, what can you expect, Monseigneur? It is their business to write and torment me when I am at rest, and to trouble me when I am happy, added Baisemeaux, bowing to Aramis. Then let them do their business. And do you do yours, added the bishop, smiling. Francois re-entered. Baisemeaux took from his hands the minister's order. He slowly undid it, and as slowly read it. Aramis pretended to be drinking, so as to be able to watch his host through the glass. Then, Baisemeaux, having read it, "'What was I just saying?' he exclaimed. "'What is it?' asked the bishop. "'An order of release. There, now, excellent news indeed to disturb us.' "'Excellent news for him whom it concerns, you will at least agree, my dear governor.' and at eight o'clock in the evening. It is charitable. Oh, charity is all very well, but it is for that fellow who says he is so weary and tired, but not for me who am amusing myself, said Baisemeaux, exasperated. Will you lose by him, then? And is the prisoner who is to be set at liberty a good payer? Oh, yes, indeed, a miserable five-franc rat. Let me see it, asked Monsieur d'Herblay. It is no indiscretion. By no means. Read it. There is urgent on the paper. You have seen that, I suppose. Oh, admirable. Urgent. A man who has been there ten years. It is urgent to set him free today, this very evening, at eight o'clock. Urgent. And Baisemeaux, shrugging his shoulders with an air of supreme disdain, flung the order on the table, and began eating again. "'They are fond of these tricks,' he said, with his mouth full. "'They seize a man some fine day, keep him under lock and key for ten years, and write to you, watch this fellow well, or keep him very strictly. And then, as soon as you are accustomed to look upon the prisoner as a dangerous man, all of a sudden, without rhyme or reason, they write— set him at liberty, and actually add to their missive, urgent. You will own, my lord, tis enough to make a man at dinner shrug his shoulders. What do you expect? It is for them to write, said Aramis, for you to execute the order. Good, good. Execute it. Oh, patience. You must not imagine that I am a slave. Gracious heaven, my very good Monsieur Baisemeaux, who ever said so? Your independence is well known. Thank heaven. But your goodness of heart is also known. Ah, don't speak of it. And your obedience to your superiors. Once a soldier, you see, Baisemeaux, always a soldier. And I shall directly obey, 
and tomorrow morning at daybreak the prisoner referred to shall be set free. Tomorrow? At dawn. Why not this evening, seeing that the lettre de cachet bears, both on the direction and inside, urgent? Because this evening we are at supper, and our affairs are urgent too. Dear Baisemeaux, booted though I be, I feel myself a priest, and charity has higher claims upon me than hunger and thirst. This unfortunate man has suffered long enough, since you have just told me that he has been your prisoner these ten years. Abridge his suffering. His good time has come. Give him the benefit quickly. God will repay you in paradise with years of felicity. You wish it? I entreat you. What, in the very middle of our repast? I implore you, such an action is worth ten benedicites. It shall be as you desire. Only our supper will get cold. Oh, never heed that. Baisemeaux leaned back to ring for Francois, and by a very natural motion turned round towards the door. The order had remained on the table. Aramis seized the opportunity when Baisemeaux was not looking to change the paper for another, folded in the same manner, which he drew swiftly from his pocket. Francois, said the governor, let the major come up here with the turnkeys of the Bretonniere. Francois bowed and quitted the room, leaving the two companions alone. End of chapter. Chapter 8 of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 8 The General of the Order There was now a brief silence, during which Aramis never removed his eyes from Baisemeaux for a moment. The latter seemed only half decided to disturb himself thus in the middle of supper, and it was clear he was trying to invent some pretext whether good or bad, for delay, at any rate till after dessert, and it appeared also that he had hit upon an excuse at last. "'Eh? But it is impossible!' he cried. "'How impossible?' said Aramis. "'Give me a glimpse of this impossibility.' "'Tis impossible to set a prisoner at liberty at such an hour. Where can he go to, a man so unacquainted with Paris?' He will find a place wherever he can. You see now, one might as well set a blind man free. I have a carriage, and will take him wherever he wishes. You have an answer for everything. Francois, tell Monsieur le Major to go and open the cell of Monsieur Selden, number three, Batardiere. Selden, exclaimed Aramis, very naturally. You said Selden, I think. I said Selden, of course. Tis the name of the man they set free. Oh, you mean to say Marchiali? said Aramis. Marchiali? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, no, no, Selden. I think you are making a mistake, Monsieur Baisemeaux. I have read the order. And I also. 
and I saw Selden in letters as large as that. And Baisemeaux held up his finger. And I read Marchiali in characters as large as this, said Aramis, also holding up two fingers. To the proof let us throw a light on the matter, said Baisemeaux, confident he was right. There is the paper, you have only to read it. I read Marchiali, returned Aramis, spreading out the paper. Look! Baisemeaux looked, and his arms dropped suddenly. Yes, yes, he said, quite overwhelmed. Yes, Marchiali. Tis plainly written, Marchiali. Quite true. Ah! How? The man of whom we have talked so much. The man whom they are every day telling me to take such care of. There is Marchiali, repeated the inflexible Aramis. I must own it, Monseigneur, but I understand nothing about it. You believe your eyes, at any rate. To tell me very plainly, there is Marchiali. And in good handwriting, too. Tis a wonder. I still see this order and the name of Selden, Irishman. I see it. Ah, I even recollect that under this name there was a blot of ink. No, there is no ink. No, there is no blot. Oh, but there was, though. I know it, because I rubbed my finger, this very one, in the powder that was over the blot. In a word, be it how it may, dear Monsieur Baisemeaux, said Aramis, and whatever you may have seen, the order is signed to release Marchiali, blot or no blot. The order is signed to release Marchiali, replied Baisemeaux mechanically, endeavouring to regain his courage. And you are going to release this prisoner, if your heart dictates you to deliver Selden also. I declare to you I will not oppose it at the least in the world. Aramis accompanied this remark with a smile, the irony of which effectually dispelled Baisemeaux's confusion of mind, and restored his courage. Monseigneur, he said, this Marchiali is the very same prisoner whom the other day a priest-confessor of our order came to visit in so imperious and so secret a manner. "'I don't know that, monsieur,' replied the bishop. "'Tis no such long time ago, dear monsieur d'Herblay.' "'It is true, but with us, monsieur, it is good that the man of to-day should no longer know what the man of yesterday did.' "'In any case,' said Baisemeaux, "'the visit of the Jesuit confessor must have given happiness to this man.' Aramis made no reply, but recommenced eating and drinking. As for Baisemeaux, no longer touching anything that was on the table, he again took up the order and examined it every way. This investigation, under ordinary circumstances, would have made the ears of the impatient Aramis burn with anger, but the Bishop of Vannes did not become incensed for so little, above all, when he had murmured to himself that to do so was dangerous. "'Are you going to release Marchiali?' he said. "'What mellow, fragrant, and delicious sherry this is, my dear governor!' "'Monseigneur,' replied Baisemeaux, "'I shall release the prisoner Marchiali when I have summoned the courier who brought the order, and above all when, by interrogating him, I have satisfied myself.' "'The order is sealed, and the courier is ignorant of the contents,' 
What do you want to satisfy yourself about? Be it so, Monseigneur, but I shall send to the ministry, and Monsieur de Lyon will either confirm or withdraw the order. What is the good of all that? asked Aramis coldly. What good? Yes, what is your object, I ask? The object of never deceiving oneself, Monseigneur nor being wanting in the respect which a subaltern owes to his superior officers, nor infringing the duties of a service one has accepted of one's own free will. Very good. You have just spoken so eloquently that I cannot but admire you. It is true that a subaltern owes respect to his superiors. He is guilty when he deceives himself, and he should be punished if he infringed either the duties or laws of his office. Besmo looked at the bishop with astonishment. "'It follows,' pursued Aramis, "'that you are going to ask advice, to put your conscience at ease in the matter?' "'Yes, monseigneur.' "'And if a superior officer gives you orders, you will obey?' "'Never doubt it, monseigneur.' "'You know the king's signature well, monsieur de Besmo?' "'Yes, monseigneur.' Is it not on this order of release? It is true, but it may. Be forged, you mean? That is evident, Monseigneur. You are right. And that of Monsieur de Lyon? I see it plain enough on the order, but for the same reason that the King's signature may have been forged, so also, and with even greater probability, may Monsieur de Lyon's. "'Your logic has the stride of a giant, Monsieur de Baisemeaux,' said Aramis, "'and your reasoning is irresistible. "'But on what special grounds do you base your idea that these signatures are false?' "'On this, the absence of counter-signatures. "'Nothing checks His Majesty's signature, "'and Monsieur de Lyon is not there to tell me he has signed.' "'Well, Monsieur de Baisemeaux, said Aramis, bending an eagle glance on the governor. I adopt so frankly your doubts, and your mode of clearing them up, that I will take a pen if you will give me one. Baisemeaux gave him a pen. And a sheet of white paper, added Aramis. Baisemeaux handed him some paper. Now I, I also, I here present, incontestably, I am going to write an order to which I am certain you will give credence, incredulous as you are. Baisemeaux turned pale at this icy assurance of manner. It seemed to him that the voice of the bishops, but just now so playful and gay, had become funereal and sad, that the wax lights changed into the tapers of a mortuary chapel, the very glasses of wine into chalices of blood. Aramis took a pen and wrote. Baisemeaux, in terror, read over his shoulder. A.M.D.G., wrote the bishop, and he drew a cross under these four letters, which signify Ad Majorum Dei Glorium, to the greater glory of God. And thus he continued, It is our pleasure that the order brought to Monsieur de Baisemeaux de Montluzon, governor for the king of the castle of the Bastille, be held by him good and effectual, and be immediately carried into operation. Signed, D'Herblay, General of the Order, by the grace of God. 
Baisemeaux was so profoundly astonished that his features remained contracted, his lips parted, and his eyes fixed. He did not move an inch, nor articulate a sound. Nothing could be heard in that large chamber but the wing-whisper of a little moth, which was fluttering to its death about the candles. Aramis, without even deigning to look at the man whom he had reduced to so miserable a condition, drew from his pocket a small case of black wax. He sealed the letter, and stamped it with a seal suspended at his breast, beneath his doublet, and when the operation was concluded, presented, still in silence, the missive to Monsieur de Baisemeaux. The latter, whose hands trembled in a manner to excite pity, turned a dull and meaningless gaze upon the letter. A last gleam of feeling played over his features, and he fell as if thunderstruck on a chair. "'Come, come,' said Aramis, after a long silence, during which the governor of the Bastille had slowly recovered his senses. "'Do not lead me to believe, dear Baisemeaux, that the presence of the general of the order is as terrible as his, and that men die merrily from having seen him. Take courage, rouse yourself, give me your hand, obey.' Baisemeaux, reassured if not satisfied, obeyed, kissed Aramis's hand, and rose. "'Immediately?' he murmured. "'Oh, there is pressing haste, my host. Take your place again, and do the honours over this beautiful dessert.' "'Monseigneur, I shall never recover such a shock as this. I who have laughed, who have jested with you, I who have dared to treat you on a footing of equality.' "'Say nothing about it, old comrade,' replied the bishop, who perceived how strained the cord was, and how dangerous it would have been to break it. "'Say nothing about it. Let us each live in our own way. To you, my protection and my friendship. To me, your obedience.' Having exactly fulfilled these two requirements, let us live happily. Baisemeaux reflected. He perceived, at a glance, the consequence of this withdrawal of a prisoner by means of a forged order, and, putting in the scale the guarantee offered him by the official order of the general, did not consider it of any value. Aramis divined this. "'My dear Baisemeaux,' said he, "'you are a simpleton. Lose this habit of reflection when I give myself the trouble to think for you.' And at another gesture he made, Baisemeaux bowed again. How shall I set about it? he said. What is the process for releasing a prisoner? I have the regulations. Well, then, follow the regulations, my friend. I go with my major to the prisoner's room, and conduct him if he is a personage of importance. But this Marchiali is not an important personage, said Aramis carelessly. I don't know answered the governor, as if he would have said, It is for you to instruct me. Then, if you don't know it, I am right. So act towards Marchiali as you act towards one of obscure station. Good. The regulations so provide. They are to the effect that the turnkey, or one of the lower officials, shall bring the prisoner before the governor in the office. Well, it is very wise, that. And then... Then we return to the prisoner, 
the valuables he wore at the time of his imprisonment, his clothes and papers, if the minister's orders have not otherwise dictated. What was the minister's order as to this Marchiali? Nothing, for the unhappy man arrived here without jewels, without papers, and almost without clothes. See how simple, then, it all is. Indeed, Baisemeaux, you make a mountain of everything. Remain here, and make them bring the prisoner to the governor's house. Baisemeaux obeyed. He summoned his lieutenant, and gave him an order, which the latter passed on, without disturbing himself about it, to the next whom it concerned. Half an hour afterwards they heard a gate shut in the court. It was the door to the dungeon, which had just rendered up its prey to the free air. Aramis blew out all the candles which lighted the room, but one, which he left burning behind the door. This flickering glare prevented the sight from resting steadily on any object. It multiplied tenfold the changing forms and shadows of the place by its wavering uncertainty. Steps drew near. "'Go and meet your men,' said Aramis to Baisemeaux. The governor obeyed. The sergeant and turnkeys disappeared. Baisemeaux re-entered, followed by a prisoner. Aramis had placed himself in the shade. He saw without being seen. Baisemeaux, in an agitated tone of voice, made the young man acquainted with the order which set him at liberty. The prisoner listened, without making a single gesture or saying a word. "'You will swear, tis the regulation that requires it,' added the governor, "'never to reveal anything that you have seen or heard in the Bastille.' The prisoner perceived a crucifix. He stretched out his hands and swore with his lips. "'And now, monsieur, you are free.' Whither do you intend going? The prisoner turned his head, as if looking behind him for some protection on which he ought to rely. Then was it that Aramis came out of the shade. I am here, he said, to render the gentleman whatever service he may please to ask. The prisoner slightly reddened, and, without hesitation, passed his arm through that of Aramis. God have you in his holy keeping he said, in a voice the firmness of which made the governor tremble as much as the form of the blessing astonished him. Aramis, on shaking hands with Baisemeaux, said to him, "'Does my order trouble you? Do you fear their finding it here, should they come to search?' "'I desire to keep it, Monseigneur,' said Baisemeaux. "'If they found it here, it would be a certain indication I should be lost.' and in that case you would be a powerful and a last auxiliary for me. "'Being your accomplice, you mean,' answered Aramis, shrugging his shoulders. "'Adieu, Baisemeaux,' said he. The horses were in waiting, making each rusty spring reverberate the carriage again with their impatience. Baisemeaux accompanied the bishop to the bottom of the steps. Aramis caused his companion to mount before him, then followed, and without giving the driver any further order, "'Go on,' said he. The carriage rattled over the pavement of the courtyard. An officer with a torch went before the horses, and gave orders at every post to let them pass. During the time taken in opening all the barriers, Aramis barely breathed, and you might have heard his sealed heart knock against his ribs. The prisoner, buried in a corner of the carriage, made no more sign of life than his companion. 
at length, a jolt more severe than the others, announced to them that they had cleared the last watercourse. Behind the carriage closed the last gate, that in the Rue Saint-Antoine. No more walls, either on the right or the left. Heaven everywhere, liberty everywhere, and life everywhere. The horses, kept in check by a vigorous hand, went quietly as far as the middle of the Faubourg. There they began to trot. Little by little, whether they were warming to their work, or whether they were urged, they gained in swiftness, and once past Bercy, the carriage seemed to fly, so great was the ardour of the coursers. The horses galloped thus as far as Villeneuve-Saint-Georges, where relays were waiting. Then four, instead of two, whirled the carriage away in the direction of Melun, and pulled up for a moment in the middle of the forest of Senart. No doubt the order had been given the postillion beforehand, for Aramis had no occasion even to make a sign. "'What is the matter?' asked the prisoner, as if waking from a long dream. "'The matter is, Monseigneur,' said Aramis, "'that before going further it is necessary your Royal Highness and I should converse.' "'I will await an opportunity, Monsieur,' answered the young prince." We could not have a better, Monseigneur. We are in the middle of a forest, and no one can hear us. The postillion? The postillion of this relay is deaf and dumb, Monseigneur. I am at your service, Monsieur de Blay. Is it your pleasure to remain in the carriage? Yes, we are comfortably seated, and I like this carriage, for it has restored me to liberty. Wait, Monseigneur, there is yet a precaution to be taken. What? We are here on the highway. Cavaliers or carriages travelling like ourselves might pass, and seeing us stopping, deem us in some difficulty. Let us avoid offers of assistance which would embarrass us. Give the postillion orders to conceal the carriage in one of the side avenues. Tis exactly what I wish to do, Monseigneur. Aramis made a sign to the deaf and dumb driver of the carriage, whom he touched on the arm. The latter, dismounted, took the leaders by the bridle, and led them over the velvet sward in the mossy grass of a winding alley, at the bottom of which, on this moonless night, the deep shades formed a curtain blacker than ink. This done, the man lay down on a slope near his horses, who on either side kept nibbling the young oak shoots. I am listening, said the young prince to Aramis, but what are you doing there? I am disarming myself of my pistols, of which we have no further need, Monseigneur. End of chapter Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.